welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, yes. how you doing? I'm not doing great. I'm doing better than you. Yeah. Because <laughs> you are uh, hopefully the tail end of a, of a nasty cold. I hope so. Uh, it's hanging on longer than I thought it was going to. Yeah. Every day I wake up and I think like, oh, you know what? I, I think I'm beating this thing. Uh, Three yeah. hours later and here I am again. Yeah, so. I had that. I mean, well, you you work from home, so you don't have this experience of being like waking up and being like, I can do it. I can go back to work today. And you like get to almost lunchtime and you're like, I'm sorry, I have to leave again. Well, there's there's a school now. Right. Uh, right. And so I had to teach class not feeling well, having just come from a screening. Uh because I had I had a whole day mapped out and uh-huh. I got sick a little bit too late to cancel anything. Uh-huh. So um, thankfully, uh, I was like, "All right, if I know I'm sick and I can't talk very well, then I'm just going to let my slideshow do the talking for me." So in my slideshow, there's a thing that just says, "I'm sick. I'm not going to be doing a lot of talking." So I just had most of what I said like up uh-huh. on for people to read and and just let the let the students discuss the movies that we had seen and that sort of thing. So did you get any of the like, "Oh, you're sick? Go home." Cuz that's a no. that's a that's something I've uh not quite gotten used to still about southern californians being big wimps. Yeah. It's like if you if you if you if I'm at work and I <coughs> if I have a little cough, it's like, "What are you doing here? Get out of here." It's like Come on, we're all sharing the same world here. The thing's gonna, whatever's going around is gonna go around. You, yeah, you might or might not. I, I just, I have, uh, I've gotten that in the past, and so I make a big show, as I have done with you. I make a big show of how much hand sanitizer I'm using. Uh-huh. I try to do enough that I smell like it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so I had to hand back all the students' papers on Thursday. And so I said, okay, I will hand you your papers, please note. And then I used hand sanitizer and then handed them their papers. Yeah. So anyway, so if, he, if they still get sick, then they can just sue the company, the hand sanitizer company. It's not my fault. Right. Because it does say, that's the claim it makes. No one will get sick <laughs> from someone who has used our product. Yes. Uh, uh, do not use the paper. So <laughs> right. um, anyway, but I, hopefully, oh. hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll make it through this episode. We are recording it several days late. Yeah. Uh, and I it's going to be my, a long one and it will be a long one. I hope my voice holds out. Yeah. But, I said I wasn't doing well. I just had a long weekend trip and I'm yeah. uh, still a little, little tired from, you know, trip stuff so no better time to record our longest episode (laughs) of the year so okay uh this episode and what who who brings us this episode well i'll tell you this episode is brought to you by movie a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent international and classic films every day movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it that means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy all for only 5.99 a month plus when you use their mobile apps you can download films to watch offline right now on movie you can watch joseph von sternberg's the blue angel starring marlena dietrich and emil yannings have you seen it um i never have no i have a i have a blu-ray of it i haven't watched it (laughs) boy what a wonderful film i absolutely adore it it is a very very strange film one that is absolutely well i mean i guess the i guess the Hayes code wouldn't apply to it because it was german but um but i think they did do they made an english language version of okay. it but the version that i've seen is the german version and it is just a it's like a it's, it's kind of nihilistic it's fatalistic it's about basically uh marlena dietrich plays this uh femme fatale type and emil yannings plays this upright school teacher 
um, and all of his pupils have been going to this club called the Blue Angel, mm-hmm. and they all fall in love with this girl. And he's like, "All right, I'm going to get to the bottom of this." He sees her, falls horrendously in love with her, and she just treats him like absolute garbage. That's a weird adverb to use for falling in love, but to fall horrendously in love, you'll see yeah. when you see the film. But anyway, so it's a marvelous film. I absolutely love it. Uh, and then there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash battleship to redeem now. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. Uh, they look great. They sound great. We use them. Uh, we stand by them. Um, we post pictures with them if they, uh, if need be. Um, <laughs> Uh, and they're all uh, available at a low, low price over there at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you'll get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So uh, go to tweakedaudio.com. And then once you've done that and you've selected your earbuds and your and your what's it's and, and, and who's it's, um, then use the offer code pretension at checkout. If debit is your go to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. All right. Um, I wanted to bring something up before we get into the okay. into the episode, because uh, you actually brought it up uh, beforehand. And this is a touchy subject, but my take on it is not touchy. It's just about semantics. Oh, OK. Uh, I saw um, it's been out for, uh, you know, over a week now, I guess, by the time you're hearing this, right? Or did it come out this weekend? Comes out tonight. Um, wait. What? This episode comes out tonight. No, I mean the movie we're talking about. Came out this weekend. Yeah, this past week. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's been out for a few days. Uh, I saw Zhang Yimou's The Great Wall. Um, it's a delight. It's a lot. It's a it's a fun fun movie. It is. This is what I've been trying to tell people. Uh, although this argument doesn't necessarily work with everyone, but The Great Wall is, in so many ways, it's the movie that I wanted Pacific Rim to be. Hmm. In terms of just being that sort of like throwback, like you know, Saturday matinee type of fun. You know, it's a it's a monster movie that feels like it's in the same continuum as like the Ray Harryhausen stuff. Yeah. You know, um, uh, and it's it definitely corny. I'm not going to try and say it's not corny. Or that the characters are anything more than archetypes, and like yeah. it's not that's just not the kind of movie it is. But yes, there have been a lot of complaints about it um, uh, um, from a, a, a racial point of view, and I think what I want to talk about because what was the term you used? The term I have. It's interesting. It's the term I have heard used, uh-huh. and so it's the one that I use just now, but I don't think I like it. No, well, it, the term was whitewashing. Yeah, and I think there are, in, there, are there have been movies where that term is absolutely, uh, you know, necessary, yes. but that's semantically, it's the wrong word for this, because whitewashing implies that you're taking a character who either his, was a real yes. person or is a character in an existing novel with or, or source material like with the M. Night Shyamalan uh, airbender yeah. movie and or making, the, uh, and making the ancient one in Doctor Strange sure and making that character white that's whitewashing this yeah. isn't based on anything this yeah. is not an historical 
Like, this is like an historical drama about the building of the Great Wall. This is a fantasy action movie about monster lizards. Now, the other term that comes up is the white savior movie that you can definitely make an argument for with, with the great, with the great wall having seen it. I think it has a lot of those conventions, but I also think, um, that the, cause the second lead is the, the, the Chinese woman. And I think that her story is strong enough. And I certainly think just the fact that it's a Chinese director keeps these, those things from being, uh, uh, patronizing, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, but yeah, my, my point is, if you want to complain about Matt Damon's role in the Great Wall, if you want a leg to stand on, you'll have it as long as you say white savior yeah. and not, not whitewash. Let's be clear when we're using these terms or, yeah. else, or else it doesn't just, just saying I'm looking out for my fellow social justice warriors. You know, we're easy targets. Don't make it easier. <laughs> well, and I would also say that just in general. Even even because the, the idea of white savior is something that actually does bother me quite a bit as well. Uh, as you know, it's one of the things that bothers me about uh, some of the more notable work by Edward Zwick, even though I, I kind of understand why he would employ that convention. Um, but uh, I do think that there are better hills to die on than this. Like this movie is ridiculous. Uh, now I haven't seen it. I will say this when I first saw a trailer for, I thought, Holy shit, that looks ridiculous and awful. Then I saw directed by Zhang Yimou. I said, I can't wait to see yeah, it. It's, it's, um, yeah. It's so bright and colorful and yeah, it's fun. I'm, I'm, I have, I'm to be up. I have the, okay. uh, the story by credits for okay. the great wall. Who's what? that last name from the bottom? The, the last name for what <laughs> Edward Zwick is <laughs> credited as with a story by David. Um, I think I've got a thesis here. Yeah, it took there's this movie has three different story by credits and three different screen like screenplay by credits. That's uh, <laughs> well, that's how you know the script is good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, the, the script is not great. It has um, it has a lot of those things. We should come up with a term for for these things that that because I know they've bothered you pointed them out to me before they bothered you before where there's a, uh, a a dialogue a back and forth an interchange that mm-hmm. ends with a clever quip except you can just tell that the entire exchange was reverse engineered from that clip that, sure. that quip you know so like um uh he talks about being left like some Pedro pascal says something to uh, matt damon about being left for dead and matt damon's like i've been left for dead twice it was bad luck and Pedro pascal goes for who and he says for the people who left me, but it's like, yeah, yeah. Why would I don't? Why would he say for who? Like that's not the question. Yeah, that's clearly just you know to to make that to end on that button. Sure, it, the whole thing is constructed for that. And there's and there's a bunch of stuff like that to the point where it almost kind of becomes kind of fun. Like I think I, I I can't remember if I put this in my review or not, but like in, in a weird way, Matt Damon and Pedro Pascal have kind of like a Hope and Crosby like. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, like, like they're always sort of wisecracking, you know, in, in bickering sort of their friends, but they bicker with each other. Yeah. It, it has, it, it's like if, yeah, if, if one of those Hope and Crosby road movies ended with them fighting lizards, the great wall <laughs> road to the great wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well that sounds, yeah, I'm excited for it. Um, if I were not sick, there are actually a number of movies, uh, like 2017 movies that I'm interested in seeing. I want to see that. I want to see, uh, 
a cure for wellness. Okay. Um, and I think there's one or two others, but like well, yeah, we're you, getting into certainly with this episode now, yeah. almost out of the way. Um, I can now mentally move into switch over to 2017. Now you didn't mention on your list. I'm assuming it's the one you forgot or you've already seen it. John Wick chapter two. Well, I got to see chapter one first. You haven't seen, I have not. <sighs> That's, when we had Scott on a while ago and I was talking about how I don't do that when someone's like, I haven't yeah. seen whatever movie with John Wick. It's like, you got to like, if it's Lawrence Arabia, it's like, you should, you know, sure. good movie worth definitely worth your time. I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. That's me. Yeah. But you know, take your time. See Lawrence Arabia, but see John Wick. It's, no, I know. <laughs> well, and that's one where it's, it's, it's such, it's so effortless, uh, to, to see and enjoy that. I just, uh, it was sort of like it's a wonderful life. The availability of it uh-huh. just sort of made me assume that I would see it at some point, right. which meant I wasn't seeing it now. But now that the sequel has come out and people love it, um, it's good. It's not as good as the first one, but it's it's good. Oh, okay, that's um, interesting. Uh, a lot of people actually like the second one more. I mean, I guess if you're just, I mean, to me, what makes the first one so great is not just that it's um, so like meticulously composed and beautiful and it has awesome action scenes is that it, it has this purity of purpose mm-hmm. because you know, you know, the setup, like his wife yeah. dies, she leaves him a dog sort of to take her place. And then, uh, Theon Greyjoy from Game of Thrones uh, steals his car and kills the dog, oh and my. so he uh, he spends the next eighty minutes shooting people in the face because of that. And it's like it's so there's never any doubt. Whereas this has a little bit more of a convoluted like how he gets back in type of thing that uh, oh, okay. I think didn't work as well for me. But I want to I want to make a point because we have to move on. We have a lot of episode <laughs> uh, a lot of episode ahead of us. But I know the number one resistance I get when I recommend John Wick to people is people say I don't like movies where dogs get killed. And I'm, I get that because killing a dog off has been used so often as like a cheap plot point or yeah. cheap, like emotional ploy. And this movie, John, the first John wick is the catharsis for every time that's ever happened to you. Every time you've seen a movie and it was, and it seemed cheap and cynical to kill the dog off just to, uh, you know, for, for an emotional purpose, this takes all of that pent up, uh, stuff and turns it into, like I said, 80 minutes of people getting shot in the face. It's like, it's the, it's a proportional response to a hundred years of dogs getting killed unfairly in movies. Open range also has that. Um, okay. though it is a, it is also a dog and another human being, but the idea of the dog being killed seemed like that was so unnecessary. Mm-hmm. That was needlessly cruel. The dog was going to do nothing to these bad guys. Right. The human posed some level of threat to them, but this dog, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's over the line. And so then our heroes destroy all of those villains. So, all right, um, well, we'll talk on the next movie journal. I'll talk in depth about John wick chapter two. Cause I indeed. liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Um, indeed. but, uh, we have to get into, into the episode, but first I want to, um, uh, mention the website, battleshipretention.com, which is where you go for all sorts of, you know, we are more than just a podcast. We're a fully functional, uh, website <laughs> and blog that puts out a, a lot of uh, a lot of content for you to read and, and other podcasts for you to listen to. That's right. Just uh, right now, the main thing we're pushing over there is we got the you can listen to the BPs. That's right. Uh, ceremony. 
um, here who here who won all the BPs this year. Um, so you can uh, now the winners are find posted. out if you win or lost in your office BPs poll. <laughs> yeah. Pool. Now the winners are posted, but the ceremony is still tremendous fun. Yeah. And I will say uh, also a lot of work. So feel free <laughs> right. to yeah. please check those out because they are I enjoy them uh, quite a bit. Yeah, and um, uh, other stuff on the website because it is that you know it's the. I understand that it's February of 2017, but it's the end of 2016 in, in this like week before the before the Oscars. So we've got reviews of a lot of the Oscar nominated or all the Oscar nominated shorts. Uh, you can read reviews uh, of those up there. Uh, we've got uh, our top tens are still going. Uh, uh, I mean, they'll culminate in this one you're hearing now. But yeah, you've got stuff from from Sarah and I think um, Jim's went up. Uh, Jim Craig. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Craig's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what else? Uh, in uh, Alexander's. Yeah. Yeah. So all the, all of the top, t- all the top 10 are now available. Um, and then later on this week, I'll be, uh, uh, compiling, compiling them and, uh, the putting list. together the, the, the master battleship pretension top 10 as well as, as the, well as the worst. The, yeah. The, the yes. 10 worst, uh, according to battleship pretension and our, our, our staff, uh, at the other podcasts, we've got uh, West's musical notation is looking at the Oscar nominated songs, mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, of 2016, which is, which is great. Did you know, I might've said this on the podcast already. Um, if Moana wins best original song, then Lynn Manuel Miranda will become the youngest person ever, to ever achieve the EGOT. That's very exciting. I don't think it's going to. No, I know it's up against La La Land. Yeah, unless because there's two songs, does La La Land split the vote, or does everyone just vote for audition because that's the song? I think they might. I, I actually see, and that's the thing. You and I are now split because I think they'll vote for City of Stars because that because is it's in sort the trailers. Of, that's sort of the theme song of that movie. I'd say. But I think anyone who's seen the movie which I'm assuming is most of the voters audition is the, the, yes, near the climax of the movie. I think, yes, I think that's my vote as well, but, uh, uh okay. Um, yeah, we've got all sorts of other, uh, uh, movie review, like my, my great wall review, my review of uh, love song. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff, including a bunch of stuff, uh, related to the, the BPs. So that's yes. fun. All right. That's all at battleshipretention.com. Now it's time to let's get into it. Shall we? Indeed. Now it's time to let's get into it. Shall we? Is the, what I just said. Um, <laughs> So the way we do this, this is our, this is our top 10 of 2016. And the way we do this, uh, every year is we, we do, we do more than just the top 10. We go above and beyond. We go the extra mile or the extra, you know, 45 minutes yeah. <laughs> of, of podcast time. So we're going to go in this order. We're going to do our worst, not our 10 worst, just our worst movie of the year. We're going to talk about our most overrated movie of the year, then our most underrated, then we'll breeze through some honorable mentions. Five, right? Uh, five honorable mentions, yeah. but we won't talk about those as in depth. As then we get into, right. we'll go back and forth with our. We top say 10. we won't talk about them as in depth. If we want to, <laughs> it tends to happen. Yeah, it does tend to happen. But uh, I'll I'll start then. We start with the negative. We get positive as it as it goes along. So yeah. my 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 vote for worst movie <laughs> of 2016 is Morton Tilden's Passengers. Oh, okay. Um, because. And I, you know, every, every year I have passengers isn't a badly constructed film. It's not a particularly, it's not particularly inspiring in its construction. It's, it's, right. a, it's a sort of workmanlike competent, uh, um, journeyman type of, uh, assemblage of a story. It's the story itself. And the, just the gobsmacking fact that it got past so many people that this is, this story is so creepy and then 
if they had made a movie that was about the creepiness, it would have been awesome. Yeah. It's a great sci-fi, like hard sci-fi premise. Like it brings up ethical dilemmas, which is what sci-fi is all about. Not this type of sci-fi. Yeah. And, and, and like it, it flirts with doing that. And then it just becomes like <laughs> a little ba- bit past the halfway point. It just becomes this sort of, you know, uh, typical by the numbers, sort of like action romance. They have to, Ugh. they have to get through the thing to save the MacGuffin, or else everyone gets blown up. Like it's that kind of uh, that kind of thing, and so it just puts like a halt on the ethical dilemma <laughs> that it is it is raised. And then, it, and then here's the thing: it, it it doesn't even just put a halt. It goes beyond that to have to have her forgive him it and and to it just doesn't make it well and that's the thing is you can have her forgive him but if, if that's what the movie's the, about i mean if you've put in the time yeah right that's you can't just like oh no now our lives are in danger i'm sorry i love you or whatever like yeah yeah it, yeah yeah it, it the movie, Maybe in like 30 years, people, somebody will remake it the way it should be. Yeah. Uh, just the movie just repeatedly keeps, uh, digging itself deeper in its hole. Yeah. Uh, and, and it, again, it is just, uh, it, it is astounding to me that it got past all the gatekeepers or whatever. And no one yeah. thought like, this is going to be a problem. You know, I would say, and I don't remember what my least favorite movie was last year or what yours was, but um, I do know that by and large, you know, we see a lot of movies throughout the year, and there are some movies that I see that were never going to be good. Uh huh. Then there are films that should be good. They've got the budget, they have the director, they've got the the solid actors, and yet somehow it just is a com- in some cases a complete whiff and in other cases genuinely insulting. Uh, and so I would say this year mm-hmm. I saw God's not dead too. Uh-huh. Is that my least favorite movie of the year? It is not. Okay. Uh, instead, because that was never going to be good. I see. And it's better than yeah. the first one. So for me, it's like, Hey, look who's improving. It's still, I think my second to last, <laughs> uh, but still, um, no, my least favorite movie uh, this should come as a surprise to no one, seeing as how much I hated it uh, when I first saw it. Is Jean Marc Vallée's Demolition? Okay. Boo, hiss, <laughs> good God! Uh, I like that director. I loved Wild. Um, I like yeah. I like Naomi Watts. I like Jake Gyllenhaal. I like Chris Cooper. Um, it, it's a premise that I think is interesting, and it just is such. I don't know if I should feel insulted by it, but I think I kind of do because it's just, it's so blatantly manipulative and it's not putting in the emotional work. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's just using a bunch of movie shorthands uh, to get me where I need to get emotionally. It is astonishing how many films are in this film. uh, Whereas there's not an ounce of heart. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not an ounce of reality. And I don't require a movie to be realistic, but I do require it uh, there to be recognizable humanity in it. You know, I don't consider the work of uh, Wes Anderson to be realistic, Mm -hmm. but if you watch something like Royal Tenenbaums, you will see little moments of humanity there. And that's enough to latch onto. I don't see any of that in this film. Uh, Though the actors are doing what they can, 
just when they start to hit a stride, the script throws something else in that is just uh, that completely knocks everything off course. And then once they start, once the the actors start to course correct a little bit, here comes the script with another mm-hmm. little bit of quirk, and it's just awful. Um, and I just. It, Unsurprisingly, it's a first-time screen, uh, screenwriter, and it feels like some. It feels like not merely a first-time screenplay, but it feels like the kind of screenplay that I would have written in high school, mm. having seen films like American Beauty and right. uh, About Schmidt and a few other notable uh, films that are like that. Better films, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to mix all of these together uh, and call them a movie. And to, and to put so much weight on the actors to have to to require them to bring everything together uh, is just uh, the movie is just an absolute mess, um, and I, I just don't. I it is such a wasted opportunity. It had so many resources that it does nothing with. Uh, now moving on to overrated overrated for a second here. I thought that we were going to have a bit of overlap. I thought my overrated was going to be your worst. Cause this is also a movie that, uh, that you hated. Um, and let's say, uh, oh, let, let's, oh, let's spell okay. worst with a W instead of an O because I'm talking about sausage party. Okay. Um, that's gotta be close to the bottom for you. It's close right? to the bottom. Um, but I, you know what? I, I, it has a certain degree of audacity that keeps it from the, bottom. I see. Yeah, that's, that's something, but I, I, I can't wrap my head around the, the response to this. I mean, this is what over the overrated and underrated thing, you know, these, that's, these categories, this is what we're, we're talking less about the movie when we, when we, when you call something overrated, you're talking, talking less about the movie than you are about yes. the response to it. And I have, I'm just been, I've just been unable to wrap my mind around why people thought it was funny. Cause it's not, there's, there's not really any, any laughs. I would say, I mean, there's the, one or two laughs here and there, but given how much there should be. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean the, the funniest stuff was the more conceptual stuff. Like the, um, Saving Private Ryan sort of homage, yeah. except that like South Park did that 10 years ago. Hmm, South Park did a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah. 10 years ago that it, this movie th- seems to think it stumbled on. Yeah. And then people, the other thing, you know, obviously people thought it was funny and also people thought it was smart and it's, it's really a, not a smart movie. It's a, uh, it's a polemic. It's a, uh, you know, it's an, uh, anti-religion polemic, which I'm not necessarily opposed to, but it's just so, shallow yeah uh that i i just i i i keep using this term but i haven't been unable to wrap my head around what exactly people were responding to in this it makes religious look nuanced by comparison yeah i I never saw religious that's a win for you but uh you know and obviously i'm i'm a religious person so uh, you know in a way i'm i'm it's unlikely that i would enjoy this film or at least embrace it thematically. But at the same time, there are plenty of movies that I should embrace thematically that I don't. Mm -hmm. So I like to think that I am able to be objective if, if I, if I can, if I'm required to be. And yeah, no, it's, I recognize that when you're speaking metaphorically, you don't have to have it. It doesn't have to be a perfect one-to-one comparison, but these guys clearly did not put a whole lot of thought into their, uh, parable elements, um, saying like, Oh, well this is a stand in for this. This is a stand in for this. Like, okay, well if this, you know, if this character is a stand in for God or a stand in for, or, uh, the, the creators of religion, then you have really done a bad job here. Um, 
And uh, I, I recorded a mini-sode over at More Than One Lesson about right. it, in which I went into a great deal of detail. And yeah, I honestly, I, I think that if I might be a bit conspiratorial and yeah, a little bit petty, I will say that um, I think one of the reasons that people like it so much is for the same reason that people, that Christians like Christian films so much. You don't really find a lot of anti-religious polemics out there. And so they're like, oh my gosh, this is great. This is finally saying so much of what I've been saying for so long. It's like, oh, okay. That doesn't mean it's saying it well. Yeah. That's a good Uh, point. That probably is part of why people uh, liked it so much. Cause yeah, this it's not, you don't see many studio movies making these points, uh, but just would have been more effective if the movie were good. What's, Boy, uh, what's your what's your vote? Your vote, vote, vote for mine is Captain America: Civil War. Um, I didn't see it. Yeah, it's. I think it benefits from not being Batman versus Superman. Okay. Um, so many people gave this film cut it a, a lot of slack and gave it more credit than it actually earns. There are moments of actual weight, but given what this film. What the story of this film is two heroes fighting now Batman and Superman are strangers mm-hmm. they don't know each other's motivations they don't trust each other now I do like this more than that film but they don't know each other's mother's first names they don't which but David I haven't seen the movie so maybe they do is there something I, I just, I just look, out I don't, my hat. yeah it's, I, <laughs> well look I don't want to spoil anything for you but uh, it it they they address it um anyways <laughs> i would have been bummed, bummed if they didn't so it's um, a pretty big multiple <clears throat> hanging out there nice uh so yeah it's um so it, it makes sense why these characters would be fighting but in civil war you have people that have fought with each other uh, have fought alongside each other and know each other and now they are fighting against each other now that is not impossible it is called civil war after all like uh, the concept of civil war does exist uh for a reason um but i don't think they do a good enough job establishing any kind of first off ideological divide between captain america and iron man they do that in the comic books but they have a lot more time to do that whereas in this they kind of just throw off throw a little like here's a cursory 15 minutes toward any towards any kind of ideological problem but ultimately it winds up being that the winter soldier otherwise known as bucky is framed for this crime captain america sides with him everybody else sides against him and so then the heroes just uh, the various heroes uh, the various avengers line up with either iron man who is sent by the government to mm. st- to get bucky or with captain america uh there's no particular reason why anybody should line up the way they do except that they just do um and hmm. and then ultimately the 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 big fight now there's two big fights one involves everybody the other involves iron man captain america and the winter soldier that fight is great that fight uh, there's a lot of emotional weight. The actors, the, 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 the operatic tragedy of what's happening finally seems to seep in, in that fight. When it's the fight with all of the Avengers now, admittedly they are pulling their punches a little bit, but the fact is there's still people that are close. Mm-hmm. People that are friends are still fighting each other. And that's a, that should be a big deal, but it takes place on an airport tarmac on an overcast day. Like it, it, 
it looks so gray and flat mm-hmm. and boring. Um, there's a couple, you know, when they, as, as tends to happen, any action involving Ant-Man pretty solid when they, inv- when they include Spider-Man solid, they okay. they fight in a different way than the other characters. So those moments are fun. But, um, but yeah, just, I feel like, you know, in my review, I said like, this should be a pivotal moment in the Avengers world. And instead it feels like a footnote on the way to infinity gauntlet, you know? Okay. And yeah. I believe, and I'm trying to think how I ended my review that the footnote ultimately reads the one where they fight each other. Uh-huh. And that's basically, <laughs> and that's not what a movie called civil war should be. Yeah. Okay. Now on to the positive stuff. Although I'm, I'm so torn up about this, uh, the, this slot, the, the, the most underrated, cause there's two movies that I really want to go to okay. bat for, um, so I'll briefly mention that I am not giving this uh, to rules don't apply, but I will say, go see rules don't apply. Don't don't believe the lack of hype. <laughs> um, it's good. It's just not the movie you might have been expecting. It's not a, a biopic of, of uh, Howard Hughes. Yeah. Um, but it's still a really good movie. But I'm going to go with another sort of uh, classy period piece. I'm going with Robert Zemeckis' Allied for okay. most most uh, most underrated movie. Uh, of the year. Um, and in this, this movie, in some ways, I think it was the movie that everyone expected in the, the, the sense that it's this, um, you know, classical throwback to sort of 1940s, like wartime romances. Um, but what I think, uh, you need to pay attention to the, the, the clue to why, uh, this movie is, is, is more than, than, uh, than meets the eye is that, is that R rating, um, which is, you know, for, uh, th- there's no reason this movie, you know, the studio wouldn't have wanted this movie to be PG 13 or whatever. Cause most like big, you know, they, you spend a lot of money. You don't want to limit your audience. It seems to happen a lot. Um, and it, but it, it's so it, uh, uh, it was surprising to me that it was already to begin with, but also Robert Zemeckis doesn't make a lot of R rated movies. Um, there's, uh, I know, I know there's at least one other one, uh, that, that he's made. Well, flight was rated R, right? Yeah. It would have to be for, yeah. Yeah. So flight there's drug use and I'm sure there's language and sexuality. Yeah. It's rated R. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he doesn't make a lot of R rated movies. And I think there's, this is another, this is a throwback in a different way to when studios made big budget, classy dramas that were R rated, not because of, you know, nudity or just like cussing a lot. Uh, but because they're, they're adult movies, they're dealing with adult ideas and allied is a movie, um, that is dealing with it's, it's looking at the nature of love and what it means to, what it means to love a person truly. Uh, and, and it gets to this idea that there's something ineffable and like almost, um, like, 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 I don't want to say platonic cause that has other, uh, connotations. That's not what I mean. Like, I mean, like there's, a, there's like a platonic ideal of love that's buried under it. And so you can, you can not actually, a person could have been telling you lies cause it's about two spies. So a person could not be who you think they are. You could be with them for 20 years and they could have been lying to you about themselves the entire time about their name, about where they came from, whatever. But there's something about that person that you still love that's underneath that. And I think, um, there's a, there's a bit of, um, 
the movie is a bit takes on some heaviness and some darkness with dealing with uh, those sorts of, but by by stripping away the sort of fairy tale ideas we have uh, about about love and romance, um, and deals seriously with something something deeper. These are these are two fucked up people. They're liars and killers by trade. Uh, and it's, so it's, it's almost like it's like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, except if it were like serious right. and world war two instead of, instead of them just being assassins. Uh, and also it's, you know, Robert Zemeckis, as much as I often have problems with him, people who've listened to this podcast for no, for a long time know that I am hard on Robert Zemeckis. Uh, and this one, it, it, it he, he resists the urge to, um, make things overly plain or to cater or pander, which I think is something he tends to do. Yeah. But something he has always done is made movies that look great. Um, <coughs> and there's not a single frame of Allied that doesn't look uh, beautiful. And all the all the costumes are so awesome. Mm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you've got, you've got some good stuff. And you've got, to go back to that R rating, it's not a particularly violent movie, except for when it is violent, that it is a very violent movie. Yeah. Um, which is something else I wasn't expecting from Robert Zemeckis really, you know, he doesn't make movies where you tend to see, you know, uh, head wounds, gushing blood. (laughs) That's not a Robert Zemeckis type of type of shot, but it's in there. uh, And I think it's very intentional Hmm. that you see that. Mr. Mrs. Smith, by the way, is an underrated film as well. I guess so. I I saw it once. I think it's a, a marvelous film and a really, and yes, it's fun and it's goofy and all that sort of thing, but it actually is a really, really nice, uh, metaphor for uh, marriage in general. Hmm. Um, but, uh, especially because, you know, we were talking, we've been talking about, uh, the idea of a movie earning, uh, certain emotional beats. Um, once the characters of Mr. and Mrs. Smith find out who each other are, it's a while before they reconcile. And even mm-hmm. as they're starting to reconcile, it's, there's still like a, a tenuous quality there. Right. Um, and, uh, and you also see genuine hurt on the part of both, uh, characters, but anyway, okay, moving on. Uh, so my underrated, now here's the funny thing about overrated and underrated. It's entirely possible. I don't actually know, but it's possible that on my list, Captain America, civil war is above this other film. Sure. But we're talking about not personal opinion. We're talking about right. rea- other people's reactions. Yes. So I'm going to talk a fi- about a film that was underrated in two ways. One is that it war- it simply was not rated enough. Uh, mm-hmm. and when it was, it wasn't rated highly enough. Uh, I'm talking about the film risen. I don't even remember this movie. It is, uh, it's a Christian film. Okay. With Joseph Fiennes as a okay. uh, Roman centurion came out about a year ago. Now this is sounding a little bit familiar. <clears throat> it's a period film. Yeah, obviously Roman centurion. And it is, uh, it's got a Draco Malfoy, isn't it? Yeah. And Curtis. Yeah. He plays uh, Jesus. Oh, spoilers. Um, and, See, uh, you know, it says Yeshua here. Oh, okay. Oh, oops. Ooh. Uh, okay. Well, there's a moment where he pulls off his mask there at the end and he's Jesus. Um, so, uh, the story is, uh, you know, Jesus has uh, been crucified and then, uh, his body goes missing from the tomb. And, uh, now there are all these rumors about him being risen, you know, him, rising from the dead. And so that doesn't look great. Uh, the, the Romans want to put that rumor down. So obviously they need to find his body. And so Joseph Fines is the, the, the guy in charge of, of, hmm. uh, investigating solid, yeah. solid. Uh, and, and it's 
treated like a procedural. As you know, I'm a fan of procedurals. And doing that, treating it like a procedural, albeit one that's, uh, that's still a period piece, it cuts a lot of the fat off that I tend not to like in Christian film. It always moves ahead. And yes, throughout he's hearing things from people who were followers of Christ. So he, he's hearing, he's learning about the man that he is, whose body he is looking for. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's a really neat way to give information, uh, to the main character and to the, the viewers. Um, it has major third act problems and there are moment there are certain scenes and certain characters that i think are, are ridiculous i will say i don't remember you have it in front of you um who plays uh, i forget his name who plays pontius pilot well let's see well it's somebody i'd heard of pontius pilot the uh it's peter firth peter firth that's right and he's been in uh a number of other things okay uh there are the the film is written fairly well, at least for the first two acts. While the procedural is going on, it's written fairly well. Uh, and I would say uh, here is an example for me of how the film is written, as opposed to how it could be written, given the genre that we're talking about. So Pontius Pilate, you know, the guy who washed his hands of things, a guy who's basically just a bureaucrat and wants mm-hmm. doesn't really want to make a lot of decisions. And he's played with with delightful, uh, I would say, Charles Lawton and Spartacus esque uh, uh, lack of gusto by Peter Firth, mm-hmm. just a guy who's just so tired of doing his job. And so uh, and there is a scene where uh, Joseph Fiennes has to report to uh, Pilate. And there's a moment where Pilate is like, decides to pontificate a little bit. And so he, he walks away and, the, and he's walking towards the camera and he says, you know, you remind me of me when I was your age because, um, um, I forget what I was saying. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh-huh. That is perfect because there's this idea that because, okay, all right. You remind me of you. You remind me of me when I was your age. All right. We've seen, we've heard that a million times before. And then he's going to talk about nothing tells you more about this guy's lack of caring than Uh the fact that he's about to say something vaguely meaningful and loses his train of thought (laughs) and doesn't care that much about it. So again, film has major third act problems. I will say that, uh, you know, given the nature of the story, we will see Jesus played, I think wonderfully by Cliff Curtis, like really seems to understand That's all Cliff Curtis does. Play, yeah. He's, he's always awesome. Yeah. You mean play characters of, yeah, no matter what various, race he's yeah, playing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but his, he, he captures the otherworldly nature of Jesus. And I don't know. It's, it is not a perfect film by any stretch. Every once in a while it does show the bu- uh, limited budget from time to time. But, okay. um, and again, the third act starts to meander, but when it is zeroed in on that, uh, on the procedural element, it is pretty solid. And I was very, I was very pleasantly surprised. All right. Now we get to get into our honorable mentions. So this, right. I'm going to do five and then you do five, but we can stop and talk. We don't okay. go, we don't go back and forth with right, these because right. it would just take too long. Uh, but at least one of these I think might be in your top 10. So, uh, you let me know if we'll talk about it later. Yeah. I predict um, it's possible that, uh, we won't actually talk much about any of my honorable mentions. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, in the number 15 slot, uh, I'm going with Clint Eastwood Sully. Um, is that a... That's one? not, no. Okay. Uh, you, but you saw it. I saw it, so, yeah. yeah. it's a terrific movie. Um, it sort of... Uh, in it, it uh, What's the word I'm looking for? 
it brought me to tears probably more than any other movie I saw in 2016. Which is fascinating. Um, it's not an emotional film, I feel like. Oh, I think it's an incredibly emotional film if you react to the things I react to. And also, if you saw it after the election, I think. <laughs> to see, <laughs> yeah. like, people just... Th- I think that the sort of... There's something very inspiring about the the movies look at sort of everyday, more or less banal heroism. Yeah. That it's, and it's not just solely everyone I'm getting emotional again. This is clearly like something that hits a, a nerve with me, but hmm. like the, you know, Aaron Eckhart and the flight attendants and the firemen and the, 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 the frogmen and uh, yeah, yeah, like everyone did their job and all the passengers looked out for one another. And it's, it's so beautiful yeah. uh, that, uh, that, that depiction we can't, we can't talk about it too much. Um, uh, next for me is Martin Scorsese's silence. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it a little later. Uh, after that, I've got Swiss Army Man, uh, which was hanging out in my Go top ahead. ten uh, for for quite a while. Um, uh, BP nominee, by the way. Uh, BP nominee, yeah, and you saw it, right? I did, yeah. Um, it's it's another movie just sort of, I think, hits... Not that it didn't... I, I didn't cry at Swiss Army Man. It's not really that kind of movie. Although I wouldn't be surprised be. to hear some if someone did. It, it's here if someone said it brought them to tears. That would not surprise me that much. But it's another movie that speaks to things that I like, which is that the idea that it's not... It's not a rosy movie. It's like life is full of shit and detritus and people are awful and selfish and, and gross a lot of the times. Yeah. Um, and despite all of that, it's all worth, worth it. It's worth life is worth living. Yeah. Uh, friendships are worth it. Like that. It has some very simple messages that it goes, it goes the long way around to get there, but in a great way, like in a way that is inventive. And I think very funny. Uh, I mean, I still think one of the hardest things I laughed at in any movie in 2016 is Daniel Radcliffe going, Laura Dern? <laughs> Do you hear that? Yes. Oh, that's so funny to me. Um, <clears throat> this one, I don't think you even saw, actually, because it's a... Uh, um, I've never done this before, but it's a short film. Oh, um, look at you. Uh, yeah, and I saw this today. If I know it played Sundance Finding a new year. way to be pretentious. <laughs> well done. Um, this played Sundance last year. I didn't see it there. I saw it at AFI Fest. Uh, it's a movie called Thunder Road. And it's a, um, it's a very simple premise. It's all, it's all one, it's about 12 minutes, 12, 13 minutes long. It's all one take. And it's just a guy giving a eulogy at his mother's funeral. And yeah, it's somehow it's, it's funnier than that sounds. And it's somehow also even sadder than that sounds. Um, uh, it's that's uh, another one that definitely I, I I welled up or maybe more than welled up uh, while while I was watching because it has some uh, I, I can't talk had <laughs> someone who lost a parent like there's some yeah. some like sort of very um, that I, I wonder there yeah there's like I I can't literally if I go too far into this I will start crying but okay. there I wonder if someone who hasn't like lost a parent would react there's there's little lines that he says that i think might like maybe it would strike someone else and maybe make them go like oh but like just gutting to yeah. uh to me and and uh i don't want to go into the the details but it's it's a really good movie it uses the um bruce springsteen song thunder road right. that's why it's called that and apparently he uh, Bruce Springsteen himself loved it and gave him oh, gave, them, gave him permission to use uh, Thunder Road and technically a few notes of Born to Run, which is funny. It's a funny part of the uh, of the movie. Um, yeah, that's 
honestly, actually, that's it's one of the things that I did not like about demolition. To go back to that, is that you know uh, a character losing somebody uh, plays a big role, and having lost not merely a parent but a number of friends at this point, um, although not a spouse, uh, in watching the film, I found myself thinking like. If this writer has lost anybody, he is hiding it really well <laughs> right. because I don't see an ounce of honesty there. Um, but when you do see it, oh my gosh! Like it's that's it, it's why uh, Danny Boyle's Millions. Uh, oh, right. yeah. There's that one scene where he there's a, a fantasy element where he's talking to like his mom who's an angel at this point or a ghost or whatever mm-hmm. you want to say, and she says, you know, like, aren't you going to say goodbye? Well, if you've lost really anybody, especially someone real close, like for me, one of the biggest things, one of my biggest regrets is I didn't really say an official goodbye to my dad. The last thing I said was see changing lanes. That's literally the <laughs> last thing I said to my father. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, but when you, and when you see those moments, like that was the moment like, well, I guess I better talk to Danny Boyle here at the Arclight. <laughs> and, uh, and I did. And he said, like, Oh, that he goes, yeah, that moment got me too. He said, he said, it made me think of my, my own mother. Um, yeah. did your dad see changing lanes? I don't think he had time to, honestly. Uh, I believe he, I believe he had passed away. He died the next day or two days later. Um, and then my final, uh, um, honorable mention. And I, I toyed with putting this one in the top 10 just because I think it'd be fun to have this in, in, in the top 10, but it's a uh, rogue one, a star Wars story. Really? Yeah. That high up. Yeah. Uh, Fascinating. And maybe this is because it's a year. I didn't, I didn't see most of them, but this was a bad year for like, tentpole blockbuster like action type franchise type movies right like i mean you talked about civil war and, and well of course, everyone hates everybody everybody loves civil war uh, okay maybe you're right um everyone hates the dc extended universe uh, or, right. or whatever it's called yeah um and even getting away from superheroes there's like jason bourne like that was a, a real disappointment yeah. you know jack reacher uh jack yeah in fact um you know a little bit of a hint when our bp like worst list comes out it's going to have more big studio blockbusters than it usually does because this was a bad year for that and so for at the end of the year a movie to come out that felt now i I don't mean it felt like a star wars movie in that like aesthetically because it it has very much its own uh, aesthetic or not its own it just borrows from different movies than star wars borrowed, borrowed from um but it felt like you know an original trilogy star wars movie in the sense that it it felt like movie magic, like big screen, serious storytelling, um, serious fun, serious action. Yeah. Um, which is something that I don't think we, um, even really got out of the force awakens. Uh, uh you know, I, I mean, I, the force awakens is a good, you know, uh, it's a good fun time at the movies. I, yeah. I, I, I liked it quite a bit, but, um, this feels like a more considered and more, um, uh, accomplished, uh, individual work and that's the and that's the other thing and maybe this is what i'm part of what i'm reacting to is that i almost can't remember the last time i saw a movie of this budget that wasn't setting up its own sequel (laughs) do you know what i mean yeah like disney made the choice that this is gonna be a standalone yeah i mean it can't stand alone because it depends on the has already been set up um, uh, and in fact yeah uh, yeah exactly yeah um but they made the decision that like but but i mean in terms of like the characters like we don't have to worry about like yeah you know what's Jin or so going to be up to after like we don't have like it's 
Um, it, it feels like they really, it just feels like a studio wanted to make a good movie and they did. And it is, uh, you know, there are, it's a, it's a world war two type of like platoon like type of movie that like we talked about before. I don't, I gotta stop calling them that. Cause I'm not talking about the Vietnam movie platoon. I'm talking yeah. about the sub genre of world war two movies that are about, uh, a, a group of soldiers accomplishing yeah. something together, which saving private Ryan is one of those. Um, and like, since we Jim is the one I usually think of. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, yeah, it, it, it achieved all that. I don't want to go, it's, you know, not one of my top tens. I don't want to go too far into it, but, um, well, I, I just, I didn't have that much fun at a, a big studio blockbuster in 2016 until the last, you know, two weeks before the year was over, which is odd. Cause it's not a film that I see as particularly fun. Yeah. Maybe fun is um, a bad word for it, but you because, were engaged, uh, which blockbusters yeah. didn't really provide except for me, uh, the one, two punch of Dr. Strange and rogue one kind of saved the blockbuster year for me. I did like Dr. Strange. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't love it, but yeah, I liked it. Um, so, and I, I will say that, Knowing that anything Star Wars is going to make a lot of money, that can provide the studio and filmmakers with freedom. Mm. You know, it's unfortunate they're going to do like this Han Solo movie because now they have to be cl- they have to stick with that character. If they did more movies like this, and it provides them with a tonal freedom because not a tonal freedom, a tonal freedom. Um, uh, I know what you mean. Yeah, but the uh, because. It's not an official chapter. It's not an official episode, which means it doesn't have to feel like Star Wars 100%. Force Awakens does need to feel like Star Wars because it's, you know, episode seven. This one is a Star Wars story. It's an offshoot. It can feel different, and it does. And, yeah, it's about characters that we are introduced to, and then they're done. Mm -hmm. And... I hope they make. I hope they take more risks like that because yeah. it, it's 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 satisfying completely in and of itself. Yep. Um, okay, so I'll say this: looking at my top fifteen here, not a lot of smaller movies, um, hmm. okay. not blockbusters, but these are you know uh, when the when the BP nominations were uh, released, um, somebody commented that that it's a lot more, they were a lot more mainstream than they have been in the past. Aside from our, you know, uh, embracing of the witch, uh, it, it looked a lot like the Oscars, which Not is to be confused with embrace of the serpent, which is a different, movie. right. That was, that was last year. Uh, actually, I think we talked about it last year, but it showed up on a lot of 2016 lists too. It I did. Never, it was I, deeply frustrating. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so yeah. Um, and what all, and so what the person said was, you know, they, they saw it less as, you know, oh, the BPs have sold out or anything like that. And more just like it speaks in, in their opinion. And I would agree it speaks to the quality of mainstream film. And I'll say mainstream in the, in the sense that, you know, films that people know about, okay. um, it speaks to the quality of those films this year as opposed to past years, you know, in, in years past, you know, movies that could be seen as quote unquote Oscar bait, um, read as that, you know, movies like the imitation game, you know, has its moments, but who cares? It's not going to be anywhere near my top 10. Whereas a lot of movies that could be considered that, um, this last year are here. So I feel, you know, obviously my, uh, my imposter syndrome and my fraud, uh, (laughs) levels are, are through the roof right now. But, uh, but you know, I'm going to justify it and just say that, what can I say? These are good movies. 
So my number 15 is Fences. Okay. Are we going to be talking no, about, that later? Be talking okay. about that later? But yeah, it's a good movie. It is a really good movie. And, um, you know, directorially it is fine. I don't, I don't think I would consider Denzel Washington an astonishing director, except that he knows how to work with actors. Obviously. And that's the nature of this film. Um, and it's, it's odd. Here's the thing. So I read, I was reading, uh, the memoir of an acquaintance of mine who grew up in like I think on Long Island, uh, in a not necessarily in an upper working class, uh, it's an upper middle class family. I figured you meant. Um, and his fa- and he he was uh, Jewish, and it was a re- at a very specific time in his uh, in the country's history when eh, being Jewish wasn't a hundred percent okay in certain places yet, um, and his. And so much having read that and then seeing fences, this guy's account of his own father is astonishing to me. Mm-hmm. His own father would perpetually undercut his son's dreams. And one, one of the things he would say is, oh, well, you know, because you're Jewish, they're, they're never going to let you get ahead. You know that, right? And... <clears throat> Now he's clearly using that because of some of the stuff that he's experienced himself and admittedly history, but he's also just using it as like a a cover for his own personal issues with his own son, with his own life. And the character that Denzel Washington plays is so complex. He is such a negative character in so many ways. Um, and yet still so charismatic. And it's just one of those things that like you see, you see the tragedy of a guy who could be a wonderful father, who could be a wonderful husband. If he could just get out of his own way and get the chip off of his shoulder and all these own, own things, but his own, one could say his own nature as a human being who's been, you know, fucked over a little bit by mm-hmm. the, by the world. Um, it is just overtaking him and he can't get away from it. It reminds me of a, of the great Santini as well. Um, have you ever seen the great Santini? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and Denzel Washington's commitment as an actor to play that part and yes, play the charm that Denzel Washington has, but also not shy away from the pure malevolence of this guy and of completely believable malevolence. This is not a supervillain. This is not his character from training day. This is, he reminds me, I've never met the stepfather from the sunset tree. Uh, the mountain goat, is it the sunset tree? Yes. Yes. From the the mountain mountain goats album. album. I've never met that man. And yet, yeah, I, 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 to live with this type of force in your life, just this shadow over everything you do, um, just seems like absolute hell. Right. And yeah. the film captures that. And Viola Davis being a, a woman who has the, uh, there's a line in the Russell Banks film, uh, the R- Russell Banks novel affliction where it says, you know, the, the women who have the misfortune to love men like this, um, uh, you very, very much see it from her point of view as well. And so, sorry, I've talked too long about it, but it really is a, a remarkable film, certainly from an acting standpoint. Yeah. And, uh, um, never mind. Hmm? <laughs> I, I like, I like Russell Banks. 
Uh, oh. Yeah, people should read those books. <laughs> I agree. Uh, okay, uh, next for me is a film I've been trumpeting ever since I saw, which is The Meddler. Um, about a different, uh, a different kind of parent. One that... Uh, is yes, played by Susan Sarandon, is also projecting some of her own issues onto her daughter. But in this case, it's she's too doting. She is too meddlesome um, because she has lost her husband. And so she moved out to Los Angeles to be with her daughter, who is a writer. And uh, and in doing so, she just it, it's clear that she does not want to deal with the the absence uh, in her own life. And so she wants to fill that with any number of other people. Uh, and it's just a lovely, lovely film. It's genuinely funny. Susan, it's the best work I've seen Susan Sarandon do in years. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, seek it out. It's a film that I think everybody will enjoy despite it seeming like just the kind of thing your mom would like. Uh, she would like it, but so would you, it is a marvelous film. Next for me is La La Land. Uh, we'll be talking about La La Land later. Okay. Next is Moonlight. Uh, okay. Let's talk about Moonlight. Okay. Oh, really? It's not on your top 15? Not on my, not on my, yeah, not there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll say this. It's not a perfect film. There are certain structural elements that, that do kind of uh, bother me and certain character elements that, that kind of bother me with some of the supporting characters. But it's such a, you know, at this point, we've talked so much about it. We talked about it and um, you know, talked about it at the BP's awards. Um and in the the movie journal, so I don't. I feel like I don't have much else to say except that it's just such a such a complete film. It's just a just a a, a complete whole uh, with a W. Um, <clears throat> just such a a wonder of character development and uh, very specific writing. Gorgeous to look at. Uh, wonderful use of music and just all of this working together to just craft this very specific story and yet one that i feel like yes this character is is african-american he is gay and he's dealing with those two things he comes from a very specific type of home and yet i feel like there's something in this character's experience that everybody can relate to in some capacity certainly people that that consider themselves outsiders yeah um it's it's a marvelous film yeah i felt like I've steered clear of mentioning that I didn't like it as much as everyone else because I feel like then that puts the pressure on me to say like, what don't you like about it? But there's nothing about Moonlight that I don't like. There just happened to be, you know, um, let's see, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19. It's my number 20. There happened to be 19 movies. I liked more this year and that's it. There are a couple of things. Then I won't, I won't even say them here. There's a couple of individual, not even elements because there are, there are certain elements of those elements that I don't really like that much. Um, and that I think could have been done better, but, um, I do think that it's, it, it definitely is like any great movie. It's, it's, it's way more than the sum of its parts mm-hmm. to talk about any individual element seems like you're robbing it a little bit. So next for me, the last one for me is, oh, uh, is 10 Cloverfield lane, which I've oh. spoken about yeah. at length. Uh, there's a film that did just mi- just missed my top 10. Um, and yeah, Dan Trachtenberg does such a wonderful job. I've, I've talked about it before. This is also a film that just feels so complete and so self-assured. Um, and Every beat that the film hits is a beat that I think it succeeds at, uh, whether it be humor or creepiness or just genuine fear or those moments when you feel like, okay, I think, I think things are going to be okay. Um, every moment, uh, 
everything you're supposed to feel, you do feel, but I also don't feel manipulated uh, into feeling that. Uh, it comes naturally from the char- the interaction of the characters and just the way he constructs the film. Uh, it's it's a really great movie. Uh, yeah, I, I can't I can't disagree. I had a I had a great time, and yet it's a pretty. Uh, pretty astounding, pretty solid debut by Dan Trachtenberg. Yeah. I, I'm now, you know, when I when I read news, you know, Dan Trachtenberg is going to direct whatever. Like, I guess he did a, he did a Black Mirror for the Netflix series, but I didn't oh, cool. I haven't watched them yet. Uh, um, he's now someone that I'm like I'm interested in that because yeah. of him because he clearly knows uh, what he's doing with uh, with a camera. <laughs> if somebody threw him a superhero movie, I would be like, good call. Yeah, yeah, and I mean. Um, and I think, you know, we knew cause he'd made short films and stuff. So I think mm-hmm. the, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not as surprised that he knows, like I said, knows what to do with the camera. Um, the test here was what's he going to do with, uh, with this, with this cast, especially since this is a, yeah. you know, even though it's a, you know, it's a genre movie, it's not an action movie. This is a very talky movie. Yeah. Um, and, to, and, and he, uh, handled everything with a plum. So, uh, go Dan Trachtenberg. All right, here we go. All right. Just over an hour in, and we're getting into our actual top ten. Okay, like we're on good pace, we're doing <laughs> good okay. pace here. Uh, so I will start with number ten, and I'm going with Anna Biller's The Love Witch. Okay, uh, for number ten, um, which you didn't see, right? I didn't. I tried to, but it was uh, sold out. Is that true? Yeah. Oh wow, good for her. Yeah. Um, and this is a movie that it it in some ways it reminds me so much of another movie that made my top 10 list four years ago, maybe, which was Casa de Mi Padre. Oh, okay. Um, but it's also not like that at all because the love, Witch is not a comedy really. It has comedy in it. Yeah. But Casa de Mi Padre was a comedy that I think got seen as being a parody of the mm-hmm. types of movies that it was, but it wasn't really that it was like an homage and it used it to, to make jokes yeah. and also to make a point. A it was pretty, knowing but that's not uh, the same as being uh, yeah. a self parody. Yeah. Parody. And, and, and the love, which I think if you're, if you were to just watch the trailer, maybe you might get the impression like, Oh, this is a parody of like late sixties, early seventies, like sexploitation, like Euro, you know, Euro art type of, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, type of type of films with that have you know like your <laughs> heavy, like cinema fantastique type stuff or or, or whatever, um, and it is that it's so spot on that it didn't even get old. Like the fact that it yeah. you know uh, the whole time I was like I can't believe how perfect this recreation is, um, and also like I know I'm usually I'm contradicting myself here because I'm usually the last person who says you need to see anything on film. I think uh, that's kind of uh, uh, elitist and backwards a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but there is something about the aesthetic that Annabella has created in the way that it looks on film. Cause I saw yeah. it projected on film and then I immediately went home to show my wife the trailer and watched like the HD trailer on YouTube. And it's a good trailer, but I was like, that's not quite the movie that I just saw. Like it doesn't quite have the textures that I, that I got to see in the, uh, in, in the theater. But so it is a perfect homage to these kind of types of movies. Um, that is occasion and again, not really for a joke, but it is a joke when you're occasionally reminded that like, Oh wait, this is actually taking place now. Like, mm-hmm. you know, cause everything is so, so like early seventies and then someone, and then like the real estate agent pulls up in like a Prius or whatever, yeah. <laughs> like it's, uh, or someone pulls out a cell phone. It's, it's, it's jarring and kind of funny, but it would be, you know, it wouldn't have made my top 10 though, if it were just about 
even as, as good as it is at recreating these the, this sort of feel and these types of movies, it wouldn't be anywhere near my top ten if that's all it were. It's also a sort of discussion between feminism today and the feminism of the 1970s. Mm. Um, and, uh, the, and, and really all of feminism in between, like what is it, uh, uh, the idea of what does it mean to be an independent woman? And like the idea, um, of that it's feminist to use your sexuality uh, as a woman. It's, is a, and the movie in true, pretension fashion doesn't give you any easy answers to these questions. Uh, it really examines all, all of them um, and has characters say sometimes ridiculous things about like what a woman should be or what a man should be, but then it commits to them and, and actually like carries that through uh, and it carries that, that sort of intellectual conversation through to the end of the movie. Um, but also it's just a fun time to watch, especially if you like these night, these, these cinema fantastic type of, um, seventies. Yeah. Art exploitation, sex exploitation, Euro movies. Um, uh, there's a scene that's like a, I guess it's like a Ren fair, but I don't know what it quite, it, what it quite is. Um, that go, it goes on forever and it could have gone on the rest of the movie for me. I didn't care. It was so weird and lovely. Uh, that um yeah if you are lucky enough at some point to get a chance to see the love witch on film do it but don't sit around not watching the love witch until you get that chance because it's worth watching yeah uh no matter what so that's my that's my number 10 what's your number 10 uh it is a documentary it is oj made in america uh so you know i've spent the last couple of uh, movie journals talking about uh, this film but i will say that i i recently while ill I watched um, The People versus O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. So fascinating to watch oh. right after um, the documentary. Yeah, I didn't. I saw. I watched the FX show when it aired, so yeah. I had a little bit of a buffer there. Yeah, and so to watch these two one right after another is is fascinating. Um, and it helps me to realize, and obviously, you know, one is a narrative show, one is a documentary. They're doing different things. Uh, and, and also, I mean, the I know we're not talking about the FX show. We're talking about uh, Ezra Edelman's movie. But um, the show itself is not really about O.J. Or very little of it. Some of well, it is, yeah, no. but very little of it is actually about O.J. Simpson, whereas, yeah. you know, this is a documentary about OJ Simpson or more than half of it. I would say is about OJ. Yes, Simpson. that is, that is true. Um, and although oddly enough, the one moment when the, the, the narrative series starts to become about OJ Simpson is the exact moment when, uh, I would like the documentary to be more about OJ Simpson, which is after the verdict mm-hmm. where it spends a lot of time with him as he comes to terms with what this actually means. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, this documentary is, you know, I, I had the thought of like, why both with the narrative series and the documentary, like why now, why is it coming out now? And I know it's been about 20 years, but I think also obviously just the, the, the time period, you know, uh, what we're living with now, um, especially in regards to the relationship between the police and, and African-Americans. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like you can watch this and really come away with a deeper understanding. It, it uses a case that everybody knows. And what's more is that everybody knows what they think already. Right. Yeah. On either side. 
everybody, this is the safest thing in the world to talk about. Um, because it was so well covered. I mean, my, you know, I was in middle school, uh, the day the verdict came along and we all, and we tuned in Yeah, Yeah, and we were taught, we were all talking about it all day long. And, you know, so I remember I was, I was me even back then. I remember insisting to my dad that OJ was innocent just to get under my dad's skin. <laughs> How did you and I become friends? I feel like, cause we met in high school, you know, and I feel like you weren't that far away from that in yeah, high school. Yeah, probably not. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, <clears throat> so it uses our assumed knowledge to get us into first off undercut what we think we know about this case or to contextualize it by, by throwing in stuff about the LAPD and the, and the history of the LAPD and not even, you know, ancient history, like, you know, eighties and early nineties, you know, even as, as, as recent as Rodney King and how that played into, um, the case itself, how Johnny Cochran chose to spin things and how the, the African American, African American community nationwide, uh, saw this as an opportunity to just like, rally together uh and and i feel like it can contextualize things now and you see stuff like you know black lives matter which is both a sentiment and a movement Mm -hmm. and the sentiment and it's frustrating you know how sometimes those two things have not all not always lined up uh as far as rhetoric um but but you see that like, you know, for, for somebody like myself, you know, I, I, I'm friends with a lot of conservatives and, and they just, they do not understand like, well, no, you don't like, how can people not get behind the idea of truth? Like, look at what this, like in, in a modern context, like, look at what this cop did, you know, the grand jury, which was, you know, they said that this cop was 100% within his legal his or her legal boundary. And then what this film says is like, yes, that might be true in that case, Mm -hmm. but look at this other case where anybody would agree that's over the line or look what happened here down, uh, down in Florida, that's over the line. And yet there was no justice. Like how, you know, and yet even if it falls under certain legal bounds, like are we going to go strictly by what, what is legal, which again, it's understandable why you would, but when people are going to twist legality, uh, to undercut justice, then why, why on earth would we ever be angry at Johnny Cochran for doing that exact thing? Mm. And so like this, it's a film that is so astonishingly relevant uh, and yet still so specific to the time and this, the case that it's, uh, that it's making, uh, that it's about at the time. So it's, it really is a, a nice thorough film. Again, I do feel like the last hour probably could have been a bit more in depth, but yeah. it's, it's really an experience. Yeah. I feel like we, we should go back and forth about these movies cause it's what the top 10 like episode is. But we, we just talked about this <laughs> twice on the movie journal in the last month or so. Uh, but yeah, I, I I agree. I'll use this time instead to talk. You mentioned Johnny Cochran, uh, to talk briefly, about maybe my favorite moment in the narrative series, Okay, 
when the juror is uh, uh, complaining that the black and white jurors are being treated differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, they gave us an hour to shop at Target and only a half hour to shop at Ross. And Judge Ito's like, so? And she's like, everybody knows black people like Ross better. And Johnny Cochran goes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay so that was that was our serious discussion about that indeed um all right number nine for me is it's one of two movies that came out this year uh in which something drastic uh, and life-changing happens to isabel huper and she reacts in ways you wouldn't expect okay um i'm going with mia hansen's mia hansen loves things to come uh as much as i do love l um and I really respect the, you know, we we were talking about audacity with (laughs) sausage party. I definitely respect the audacity of L, but it's a, uh, it, it's a very, it's a very arch movie and that's not necessarily a bad thing at all, but things to come is different. Things to come is much more, uh, realistic. And this is a movie about a, uh, in which Isabel Huppert plays a, uh, philosophy professor at a, at a college, um, whose husband is also a philosophy professor. Uh, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be at the same college or a different one. Um, and then he reveals to her that he's been having an affair with the younger woman and he wants a divorce and he's going to move in with mm-hmm. this younger woman. And so, um, uh, instead of being the sort of like turgid melodrama about the aftermath of an, of an affair, the choice that May Hansen Love makes instead is to tell a story about someone who is now, you know, middle-aged single her children are grown and for the she's suddenly for the first time of her uh, in her life she doesn't have any expectation of how she's supposed to or what role she's supposed to fit into or how she's supposed to behave there's a kind of freedom in it which is it's not to say that the movie is that she's like dancing around going yeah i'm divorced now Mm -hmm. like this is clearly you know an emotionally traumatic thing that she's going through but um it, 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 but instead of dwelling on that, the movie is more about, well, now what does she do? Um, and like I said, I, I mentioned on purpose that she's a philosophy professor because this is a movie that's very interested in that sort of, that sort of thing. Um, uh, by that, by that sort of thing, I mean philosophy, but it's interested in the idea of what she's been teaching and writing about all these years. She's the, the, uh, uh, one of her, she meets up with one of her former students who accuses her of, Basically, she's just been giving lip service to her own philosophy her entire life, and now she's in a position to actually live according to the ways that she uh, has claimed to uh, adhere to mm-hmm. um, uh, all of her life. Um, and and I, uh, it's it's just it's just like Elle. It's a movie that, um, despite having a sort of inciting incident that you've seen in a number of movies. Um, it never makes the choices you think it's going to make, but it also never, um, unlike L, which I think sometimes is intentionally, um, you know, poking and prodding the audience. And again, I like that a lot. I'm not talking shit about L, um, but things to come unfolds naturally. It unfolds, uh, according to the way this character as she's been created would, would react. Um, and so it's a movie that's never shocking, but always surprising. <laughs> I think you'd like it a lot, by the way. Things to come or L or both? Uh, both. But yeah, I think you'd like things okay. to come maybe more. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's funny that you bring up L because this next film stars L Fanning. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. It is Nicholas winning reference, the neon demon. 
Wow. I, I knew you liked this movie, but I am surprised that you liked it this much. Yeah, and that's after a, uh, a reconfiguring of my top ten. It was higher wow. uh, until uh, a few days ago. Yeah, um, it's... As you know, I'm not a big fan of Nicholas Winding Refn. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tend to find his films rather shallow and empty, and this film is really no different. But, as I've said before, he's finally making a movie about characters <laughs> as empty as he is. Um, or rather, <laughs> as empty as his films are. And I feel like that is, I think it's it's perfect. And he has managed to make this odd little horror movie. Uh, which is kind of how I uh, approach it. Um, n- certainly not a conventional one. Yeah. But it is, uh, there is a, a perpetual tension. We have uh, a woman who is, who turns out to be rather something of a monster herself, but she's, she's getting slowly but surely pulled into this world that is so vampiric, uh, in many ways. And, uh, and the world itself just feels so, as as portrayed by um, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, as just emotionally empty, morally empty, mm-hmm. uh, but constantly moving and constantly thriving. Not not unlike a shark, um, constantly moving forward, but there's really nothing there. You know, a del- a lifeless eyes, like a doll's eyes. You know, um, yeah. I don't know that I'd describe this movie though as constantly moving. You know, but the industry is constantly moving, okay. and like once she is, once she's like in the midst of a shoot or something like mm-hmm. that, then I'd say there's a bit more of a, of forward momentum. Um, and the idea and and her rise to uh, you know quote unquote stardom uh, is, is some is fairly uh, meteoric you know that moves quickly um, and so but the fact that the that the film does not move in that way is something I find very interesting and so it's just a I don't know it's it's there's a, there's definitely an, uh, an ambient horror quality to it. Uh, I've also heard terms like not in regards to this film, but the term like tone poem, which the film is not, but it feels like that sometimes where, uh, Refn is, is, you know, and he's done this before where he, he's using all of his powers editorially, uh, visually, um, uh, musically he's using all of them to just craft this feeling and this one for, I guess maybe, maybe even more so than feeling a vibe, um, of, of, of loneliness and dread and just a general, just feeling of, of, being unsettled. Um, and that's how I felt all the way through. And then the film finally pays off on, (laughs) you know, pays that off. And I feel like it's just, you know, the script is a mess. Obviously it's, it's really stupid. It is really Um, stupid, but, but, and usually that bothers me. Um, and it bothers me here as well, but so many, so much of the rest of the film is so, I feel the way I feel about this film, the way people feel about avatar, you know, (laughs) people are willing to forgive that, 
yeah, yeah, awful I get script. That. Um, because only, it just it pulls me in so much. Um, the only good line of dialogue in the Neon Demon is one that Keanu Reeves apparently ad libbed, which is "Room two fourteen has to be seen." <laughs> I could, see, yeah. Um, um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a film that I that I I'm not sure if I'd say I enjoy it, but I, I respect it a lot, and I have not liked Refn that much the last several years, but somehow yeah. this, this, this got me. Uh, and th- you know, I, I can't fall through even though it didn't get me. Um, because I'm a person who was gotten by only God forgives, which I think mm-hmm. is, uh, is terrific, even though it's just as dumb, if not dumber than this movie. Um, but yeah, neon demon, it, it, most of that, that, um, the, the, the shallowness, not just the thing about shallowness, but the shallowness of it and the groaners of the, of, of dialogue, yeah. uh, they turned me off up until the very end, which I loved. Like once it becomes like you mentioned, you called it a horror movie, you know, once it becomes a horror movie for real, um, then I'm absolutely on board. Yeah. Uh, I liked that a lot. Um, before we move on, we should do, I don't know uh, when was the last time we added a category to the BPs. Um, this year we had an art direction. Oh, I didn't even notice. Yeah. Um, but I mean, one of our fun categories. Oh, sure. Right. There should be a category for actors and actresses who have had a great year. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like this person's been good in a bunch of stuff. Um, cause Jenna Malone was great in neon demon. Yeah, she was. And in nocturnal animals, even though it's a very small role. Yeah. And also a movie called love song, which I think might be considered a 2017 movie. It played Sundance last year. Yeah. I saw it last year, but it, I think it actually did. Yeah, I know it did. Cause I reposted my review. It, it actually came out like this week. So I'm not sure if that, if that counts, uh, theatrically, but, uh, and apparently she was also in Batman versus Superman, which I didn't know. Um, was she, that's what IMDb says. I don't remember. Okay. Uh, moving on to our number eight, number okay. eight for me is Andrea Arnold's American honey. Okay. Uh, which is, um, I, I, I think this is, I, and I, I don't think I, I can't remember if I nominated her for the BP or whatever, but, um, uh, Sasha, no, I can't remember. Sasha Lane, I think is the actress's name, um, is definitely one of the crowning performances of, of the year. Uh, Andrea Arnold found this person who was not an actor, mm-hmm. um, and, was correct to uh, perceive that this person could absolutely uh, hold this two and a half hour plus um, road movie uh, uh, love story uh, epic. Um, but also uh, I want to point out the, the cinematography, which is kind of deceptively perfect. If you know what I mean? Um, uh, or, or it's, it's deceptively loose seeming. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like it feels like it's a, it's, um, Robbie Ryan is the, um, the, the great cinematographer. Um, and it, it, it sort of, um, feels like, uh, that it, it's, you know, another handheld indie, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen so many of, yeah, it, it feels like that. But then, um, and I and I say cinematography, but I should really be talking about the mise en scene in general, um, which is obviously coming from Andrea Arnold and the costume designer whose name I meant to look up uh, and forgot, um, who um, mostly let the character. Most of the people in the movie are non actors. Um, mostly let them pick their own 
clothes, but then mm-hmm. she would sort of curate from that to make them sort of more heightened versions of how they, how they present themselves. Uh, and so because of all this costume design and, uh, hair choices like Shia LaBeouf's rat tail. Um, oh. uh, yeah. And, and, and the, the, the parts of, you know, Oklahoma and Kansas and everything where they're, where they're shooting, um, uh, combined to make a, like a subtly, incredibly beautiful movie. Because a lot of times when people talk about a movie like, say, I did with Allied or even with, like, Neon Demon, when people talk about a movie that's beautiful, they have that, like, uh, oh, you could hang any frame of that movie uh, on a wall. And I think American Honey is a movie that when you're watching it, maybe you wouldn't immediately think of it like that. But just, like, try closing your eyes and hitting pause on American American Honey, and I'll I'll bet you'll, you'll be surprised to find um really serious and lovely uh compositions hmm. um i don't i don't i don't just want to talk about the cinematography i also think it has um the best um soundtrack <laughs> uh it's it's all like very recent uh hip hop like um big sean and racer murd and uh, a lot of other people like that um and it's constant it's wall to wall uh you know like i said this movie's over two and a half hours long and there's almost no point that doesn't have like a booming like hip-hop song uh in it and yet it's not that kind of like that makes the movie seem more aggro than it is yeah um it's actually very lovely um and wistful and sad uh movie um and uh yeah the last thing i'll say is another um uh, another shout out performance wise to Riley Keough, who's along with Shia LaBeouf, the only like professional actor in the main cast. There's also a part where, with, uh, your favorite, uh, guy, Will Patton. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> unsurprisingly, I forgot about him. Yeah. <laughs> um, wait, did you see American honey? I, no, forget. I okay. mean, in general. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, he plays a character who, um, is referred to as backseat in the credits he? because he's sitting in the backseat of a car. He's good. He f- fulfills the part he's supposed to. Um, that's, <laughs> that's, what that's what he does. <laughs> um, but uh, Riley Keough is the um, sort of, the, the, I don't know. The, I, I didn't talk about what the plot is. Uh, Sasha Lane plays a, um, uh, a woman, a young woman, a teenager who is, um, uh, you know, raising her younger like i think they're supposed to be her half siblings or maybe they're not even supposed to be her her siblings um and she's being and, and she's scraping by stealing food out of dumpsters and getting molested by her father and it's all it's awful and then she meets shia labeouf's character who um it works on this mag crew which is a real thing people like uh teenagers riding around the countryside going door-to-door selling magazines um and if you actually read about, I looked into it, you read about this stuff, it's, it's horrible. Like the, these kids are really taken advantage of. Um, but she joins a mag crew. And, uh, so Shia LaBeouf is like sort of the head magazine seller and trainer, but Riley Keough is the one who's actually like running the, mm-hmm. the crew. And, um, she's, uh, absolutely terrific. Um, uh, you know, there's, uh, speaking of shots, you could pause and hang on a, on a, on a wall. Um, the 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 scene of her wearing a confederate flag bikini while shia labeouf puts suntan lotion on her legs um is uh startling and not not an image that you're likely to forget i imagine not <laughs> uh i haven't seen it and now i can't shake it out of my mind uh okay so next for me uh my number eight right is what we're looking at yep uh is the coen brothers hail caesar oh this is a good movie it is a good movie um and it's a film that i feel like 
some people really love. Um, I've run across a lot of people that hate it. Um, and I guess I understand why, because it's not remarkably organized. And it definitely was billed a very specific ways. It was definitely billed as much more of an ensemble, but it really yeah. is one guy's story and he encounters people throughout his day. Yeah. It does the thing. I think I talked about it on the podcast. The trailer does the same, the same thing that the trailer for the big short did, sure. which is try to trick the viewer into thinking that all of these big stars are in the same room at the same time. No. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's not the way Hail Caesar yeah. unfolds. Uh, and, but I love that it's about this one guy and, so, okay. So I like it on, on two levels. I like it thematically and I like it artistically. Um, and then I like it on two levels thematically. Uh, so on, on, you know, on the artistic level, it is very lavish and it, it is delightful. It's a, it's a marvelous love letter to film. Uh, it's appropriate that I'm, uh, that I'm, uh, uh, TAing for this film history class right now because as we're watching all these, we're watching clips, we're watching films. Like I'm actually seeing the various types of movies that the that this film is referencing, and uh, and it's doing it so lovingly, but also in a once again go, to go back to that word I used that a uh, very knowing way, mm-hmm. uh, acknowledging that not all of these uh, not all these films are probably that good. Um, but they are all good in their own way, you know? Um, and so it, it approximates all of that very well. Uh, and then I think it is also very funny in a number of ways. And, and it also has this, the, the, the undercurrent of, of, you know, communism and just the idea that there actually is like this, collection of uh, of writers that are just really unhappy and and uh and so they're they're trying to uh subvert um uh capitalism in a really subtle and probably not very effective way in their <laughs> scripts um but therein lay the uh the theme that i that i like um is and this might be something that resonates with me uh, specifically because of just the, the, the various, uh, crowds that I run with where art and I'd say film specifically is so regularly downplayed as a worthwhile thing. It is seen as entertainment and it, and it often is. And certainly a lot of the films depicted in hail Caesar are pure entertainment mm-hmm. you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Sorry. I threw off and there's nothing wrong with that. This film is saying there's nothing wrong with that. This film is in in true like Sullivan's Travels types uh, type, uh, fashion. Um, it's saying that yeah, we're not saving anybody's lives. We're not doing anything incredibly. Uh, we're not doctors or nurses or or soldiers or anything like that. We do this other thing. We, if you'll pardon me, make life a little bit more worth living. Yes people are saving lives and that's marvelous. But then once those lives are saved, what are those people going to go do? Um, but I think there's also, cause yes, it, it does make an argument for these sort of big populist entertainments, but there's also a, a recurring theme of there being subtext. And even in the movie itself, it's sometimes subtext. Yeah. Um, but so even in these things, when you say like, it's, you know, 
uh, I can't remember how you described it before you said there's something wrong with that, but they're just, yeah, just big entertainments. But there's also, there's all like, even if people aren't intending, even if the filmmaker is not intending there to be something going right. on, there always is because it's art. So when you've got like, I, mean, I think the biggest tongue in cheek example is no dames, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. which is a, 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 an incredibly homoerotic song yeah. that's superficially about how much these guys love women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And I honestly, and I, I feel like that's, that's, you know, I mean, obviously I agree with that. I, I have an entire second podcast about that. Um, but what I do like is that the Eddie Mannix character, um, played by Josh Brolin, like his, his character is a well-developed character and I do care about him and you just see the various things that he's a part of. And it does seem chaotic and, and completely ridiculous, but you do see such a genuine love for this thing, uh, that is driving, driving him crazy. And so, you know, the film is like the Coen brothers love letter to movies in general and maybe trying to remind audiences, certainly movie lovers, of why they love movies in the first place, because it's very easy to get cynical about them, uh, either on the level of the Lockheed executive who's trying mm-hmm. to, who sees absolutely no worth in this at all, or the, the communist writers who see only the type of worth that they think is right, worth right. anything. Um, and no, it's movies and art have an inherent worth simply because they exist and they can engage with you on any, on any number of levels, whether the artist intends it or whether other, or whether anybody else sees it. Um, art is remarkably personal. I mean, if nothing else, just look at these lists. Like so far they're, they've been very different. Uh, even so yeah. far as me, you know, loving neon demon and having it really resonate with me. Whereas with you, it, it did not, you yeah. know, art. And certainly my number one is a very personal pick. Um, <clears throat> You know, and Hail Caesar, while being entertaining and while being fun, is also about that. And in doing so, the film itself is an is a perfect encapsulation of the argument that the film is making. So I don't know. It's uh, I don't know. Just a really, uh, really marvelous film, and I think it's it's a very it's after the Coen brothers have made the movies that they've been making over the last few years, I feel like this is one they needed to make clearly. Uh, yeah, I can't, it's, it's one, it's like most Coen brothers movies. It's one I, I look forward to watching again and again in the years to come. Uh, one thing about it though. Okay. And this isn't necessarily about hail Caesar, but just about movies in general. So I'll go, I'll go, uh, I'll go with you were talking about OJ made in America and the people versus OJ Simpson. Mm -hmm. Like, it needing the time before that, like that suddenly came back on the radar. Sure. Right. Um, and it reminds me of like when I was a kid, not even a, a kid. Yeah, I guess a kid. when I first saw gone with the wind, like I didn't notice that it was racist. Or sure. the, like I was just because I was in a community where I wasn't around black people or getting a black perspective very often. Mm-hmm. It just like, it was like, Oh, it's just the way that it was. Like, I don't, I don't notice those things, but as we become, if you'll forgive me more woke, <laughs> right. Okay. These things. So things that like weren't necessarily intentional, uh, uh, or, or were subconscious at the time that happened a lot in movies are now when you watch old movies and you watch, 
Um, uh, and I was just talking about a friend who was talking about watching movies from the eighties and even into the nineties and like how, like the gender politics of them that are not even what the movie's about, like mm-hmm. sometimes make him like cringe or just seem like surprising that that's the way, the way things were. I feel like, um, the thing that I'm starting to notice and I wonder where there's going to be a tipping point more and more. And I'm sure a lot of women have noticed this for a long time, but, um, Josh Brolin's wife in the movie is played by Alison Pill, mm-hmm. who is almost 20 years younger oh, right, than, yeah. than he is. And that's so common in movies f- for, you know, the older man, wo- younger woman thing. Um, do you think there will be a point where you can't, you can't do that without explaining it? Do you know what I mean? Like, is, is that sort of mismatch age mismatch becoming more and more visible to the point where if you're going to have it in a movie, then you have to have a reason for it. Cause Hail Caesar doesn't give any reason for why he's 20 years older than his wife. <laughs> I would, <laughs> you know, I would say in, in the case of this, I, I know, I know what you mean, especially like in like, you know, with uh, Tom Cruise love interests and stuff like right, that. Yeah. Uh, in a film like this, I'd say it is more a reflection of the character. And even though he clearly loves his wife and she clearly loves him, I could just see it being like a Hollywood executive because the Coen brothers see, are not, you know, be... they're not opposed to building a movie around Francis McDormand and her, and her middle-aged husband, like both of them in their forties at that point. Um, I'm not saying that it's, they did this for box office receipts or, <laughs> or whatever, but I, but I also disagree because I don't think that, uh, is it Harry Mannix? Is that his name? Eddie, Eddie, Eddie Mannix. Mannix. I don't think he's that type of character. Uh, I, he doesn't seem like a shallow guy. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so, I'm not saying that I need an explanation for it in Hail Caesar. This isn't about Hail Caesar specifically. Mm-hmm. This is about in general, the trend of pairing, you know, men with female co-stars who are considerably younger than they are. Yeah. It was, there's going to be a tipping point where you just have to stop doing it or have a reason why this person is with someone who's that much younger, you know, like there was, I remember, um, uh, and I don't watch uh, James Bond movies <laughs> really, right. but I guess in one of the last couple ones, there's a like a, a scene between um, James Bond played by Daniel Craig and Monica Bellucci, um, right? Isn't she in one of them? Maybe because uh, so I remember reading an interview where someone was like, "This is the first time we've seen Bond." with an older woman is how the interviewer uh, described it. And Dan yeah. Craig, like to his credit quickly pointed out like, no, she's his age. Yeah, this yeah. is the first time you've seen bond with a woman, his age. And the person's like, no, I'm talking about Judy Dent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, I, I guess I'm, I'm talking about, this is what wokeness is, I guess, uh, at, at a certain point, things that we've all, that we've never commented on that have just always been the way they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a certain point, there's going to be an accounting for that. I suppose so. I'm just saying at this point to me that 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 trope older man younger woman it has crossed the boundary into being a distraction like if it's if it's in a movie I notice it like the first thing that happened when Allison Pill you know comes out of the kitchen or whatever and when he walks into the kitchen Allison Pill's in there I was like what the fuck yeah that is because you know Josh bro okay well uh, yeah we, we shouldn't use this this movie as an example um what, what's one of the other ones right now? Like, because it's happened a few times with Tom Cruise, right? Yeah. Well, there's those, um, uh, there was a chart a few years ago that had like Tom Cruise. And I think like, um, 
maybe Denzel Washington and Johnny Depp, I think was a big one hmm. uh, where it like charts their age and like the major movies at each point and like the age yeah. of their female co-stars, which is the same or in some cases like actually goes down. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure what the point you were making. Is it an ego thing? I assume it is. Like, uh, it, I don't it, think it's coming it, from the actors. Huh. I think it's coming from the, the studios. They're saying that this actor who's in his forties or fifties yeah. is bankable, but we don't believe that an actress in her forties or fifties is bankable. We need to have someone who's younger and quote, like quote unquote hotter. Um, mm. and also maybe like <laughs> there's a recognition that these are probably really underwritten characters generally. Sure. Uh, and you know, maybe you're not going to offer that to Marion Cotillard. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's true. I'm trying to think if there's a, if it's a situation, you know, and this, maybe I'm being, uh, something of a Pollyanna here. Um, I wonder if it comes down to like, well, we have this bankable male star and he is in fact the lead. We don't want to acknowledge that his, that he's older. Oh, right. So he could read young if we surround him with, or if we pair him with someone that is younger, if we pair him with, a quote unquote older woman, then it will read that both of them are in fact 53, uh-huh. but he might read 45 if he's paired with someone that is 30 right, or yeah, 35 yeah, or something yeah. like that. So maybe it's that, but at this, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it could be the other thing as well. Um, All right, that was a good okay. conversation. Uh, back to me. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I think you probably could have said that before you started uh, that conversation, right? <laughs> Back to my list is what I meant. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, number seven for me is The Handmaiden. Okay. Um, have you not seen this? I have not seen it. I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to see it based on some of the things that I've oh, heard. Oh, that's right. Yes. I um, probably still will see it, to be honest with you, just because I'd like to be part of the conversation. I just haven't had the time. I haven't had the time to see much. Like once yeah. I started TAing, like, and this is another one you need time to see it. Cause it's, <laughs> that's what I've two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, and I, I, we talked about this, um, a little bit you know, when we did our, uh, what was it? Two weeks ago, we did our individual achievements. Cause I, I pointed out the, the adapted screenplay. Um, but the film won three BPs, by the way. How about that? Yeah. Uh, I don't think I even realized. Uh, uh, I don't think, uh, as of this point, I haven't actually looked <laughs> at the winners. I was out of town all weekend, so I haven't really had my computer open. I've barely even been on Twitter. That'll tell you. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. So the, the handmaiden is a based on a novel that's set in Victorian England. Um, that is transplanted to, uh, 1930s Japanese occupied Korea. Um, and, it's it's sort of like um i was talking about with the love witch this isn't just like an exercise it's moved to that time and place not only because it's a korean movie but like for specific reasons um in terms of like you know i was i was sure to point out not just 1930s korea but 1930s japanese occupied korea that's a huge part of the story um and given that it's a story that's so much of it is about domination and submission uh in 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 sexual ways uh and all sorts of other ways um there are some clear parallels to draw there to mm-hmm. you know an occupying force uh but it's also a beautiful love story it's also a really clever con man movie the kind of the, the kind of movie that does the thing where like 
you'll see a whole stretch of time and you get to a certain point and be like, Oh no. And then it'll jump back and show you here's what happened over the last two months of the story that you didn't see, you okay. know, and it does that more than once, like jumps around. And that, and that's, that's a, I think uh, a trope that sometimes can be a little too cutesy to me in, in, in some uh, con man movies, but when done, done right, it's, it's thrilling and fun, mm-hmm. you know, to, to constantly be uh, going, Oh, you know, yeah. having that kind of reaction. And so, I mean, uh, I think Park Chan-wook makes movies that are, you know, in many ways they are art with a capital A and uh, uh, they can be befuddling. But he's also, I think, like the best high art, like highbrow artists. He also, like David Lynch, I think is another one like this. Also, he never forgets to be fun. Yeah. You know, and so the handmaiden fits all of these categories that are recognizable, familiar genre type movies, um, and yet is also a, a, a an object, object d'art, an object of art, uh, completely its own. Uh, and that's kind of what I look for in. If you look at a lot of my favorite movies, they are that sort of thing. You mm-hmm. know, like I don't know. Picking a hanging rock is both, uh, you know, it's a, it's a horror and, uh, you know, horror mystery type of movie. Uh, but it's also, there's no other movie like picking a hanging rock. Yeah. Uh, and, um, the handmaiden is, uh, a, a, a similar, similar thing. And it's absolutely beautiful to, to look at. How are those costumes? Oh, they're terrific. Why? And the, and the art direction. Is this, a uh, uh, would you say that the art direction is the best of the year? Oh, would the BP say yes. that? Oh yeah. Then I, yeah, definitely. I would say that. The, and as that far as like right choice films that are not in English, would you say it's the best of the year? Uh, no. Oh, oh well, I, I know a number of people that disagree yeah. with you. It is actually, I mean, this is a little bit of a teaser for what's to come, but the handmaiden is my second favorite foreign language. Film okay. Then. So there's one, there's one more to come. All right. Um, Oh, I think I, I bet I know what the first one is. Um, <laughs> okay. Let's move on. And, uh, yeah, because I'm, I'm, uh, I want to hear what yours is, but I'm eager to get back to mine because it would be the first one on my top 10 that you've actually seen. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, okay. So, uh, next for me is Martin Scorsese's silence. As, as I said before, this was in the honorable mention category for me. Uh, best Scorsese film since Goodfellas, I think. Wolf of Wall Street is pretty damn good. That's, you know, I'm, that's exactly, I said that to a friend of ours over the weekend and that it was his reaction exactly is that I don't know that he also might prefer Wolf of Wall Street, but, uh, yeah, I think it's better than Wolf of Wall Street and I love Wolf and of yeah, Wall they, Street. They couldn't be more different. Like it's astonishing <laughs> to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, silence is a film I have a hard time talking about because there's so much going on in it. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, as a, person of faith it's going to touch me on a very specific t- uh, level although it definitely there are people it, it divides people in the in the christian community as far mm. as uh you know what is acceptable when it comes to a public declaration of faith and that sort of thing um mm. but i also feel like it's just such a <clears throat> it's just so committed to telling the story that it's going to tell and i think it's committed to uh exploring every nuance of that story and of the dilemma that our characters are dealing with. Um, and the Andrew Garfield character, he has to juggle so much. There's trying to find his old mentor. There's 
you know, he's trying to give faith and minister to the, the, the villagers that are turning to him for guidance. Uh, he's trying to take a stand against the, the government, uh, that is Mm -hmm. trying to stamp out, uh, the Christian faith. And then there's other elements, you know, where he's trying to keep track of where the Adam driver character is. There's this other, uh, character that keeps betraying everybody he knows and then coming yeah. to him for, for forgiveness. There's all, he, there's all of these things and all of those are external, but then internal it's okay. But what does this mean for my personal faith? You know, it's, it's, it's very possible to be doing all of the, uh, doing a lot of things related to your faith or the related to whatever philosophy you might have and yet lose track of that specifically, you know, and when that happens, uh, as it, as it often does, uh, for me, um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's possible to feel like a hypocrite. It's possible to feel like a fool, uh, and that you're doing all of this stuff, uh, that you're making a lot of noise when in fact there is a silence, uh, inside mm. you. And so there's a, there's just so much going on in the film. And, I I like that the, that Scorsese who clearly, as we all know, uh, has been, trying to make this movie for a long time. And so I think he's, he's being true to himself and, and, uh, his own faith. And so I think he recognizes that this is not a film that could be made in two hours. It needs to be, you know, two forty-five, whatever it is. Um, so that he could allow the character to really try to th- sit and think and try to figure out where he falls on certain philosophical issues on certain faith issues and then allow the audience time to think to figure out where they land on things um so that's just you know thematically what it's dealing with and from a character standpoint uh, also obviously it is a gorgeous film yeah and it's a film that feels so much more and i don't mean this in a negative way and i don't mean to undercut Scorsese here, but it's a film that feels very, uh, Terrence Malick, uh, in its sensibilities and in its patience. Mm. Um, I don't think of, uh, I think of Scorsese as such a visceral filmmaker and this is a visceral film, but it doesn't have the forward momentum that his films usually do. And so for him to restrain himself in that way, which is the nature, which is how this story should be told, um, is very admirable. And so it's just a, uh, a, a, a thought-provoking film, maybe for me this year, maybe the most thought-provoking film that I saw. Uh, yeah, I don't have much more to add. I do want to go back to the cinematography because uh, it's, um, Rodrigo Prieto uh, is the cinematographer, and he's one of my favorites because, um, again, to compare, when people talk about great cinematography um, or, or talk about things that are, that are beautiful, there's often... Um, and like with neon demon, but this is, it's intentional in that case, but there's like an, it's, it's overworked to the point of being airless. Yeah. And I think Rodrigo Prieto is great, uh, not just in this, but in, um, uh, movies like all the movies he's shot going back to like, uh, Amores Peros and, um, eight mile, which is a, uh, I think mm-hmm. underrated uh, as a visual, uh, visual work. Um, he finds beautiful composition without ever leaving without, without ever forgetting the, the, the texture and, and yeah. you know, the, the, the weight and the groundedness, which is right for this type of movie because silence is a movie that's about faith, but it is the movie itself. I don't know. And I don't know if you'll agree with me. This might be just a, a non-believers take on it. The movie itself is not particularly concerned with whether or not God exists. 
True. This is about this character's belief. I agree. Uh, and so in that sense, it is, you know, it gets compared. We talk about last temptation a lot, but in, it, because they're both, uh, movies that are, you know, very much about Christians. <laughs> um, but in some ways they couldn't be more different because silence is about, it's completely tied to the earth and it's and 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 living people, uh, in the day to day of having faith and not about whether or not, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter to the movie either way. I think, yeah. uh, whether or not it's real. Uh, and so I think Rodrigo Prieto is the right guy to do that. Yeah, I, right. I, I agree. Okay. Okay. So what is this film that I've apparently seen? Uh, <laughs> uh, so this is my number six. God, are we only on? Okay. We have a long way to go. Uh, number six for me is Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the sea. We'll talk about it in a minute. Okay. What's your number six? Oh boy. Hang on. I forgot that that's what we do. Uh, (laughs) next for me is hell or high water. Okay. Let's talk about it. Okay. Didn't, didn't make the cut. Yeah. Uh, this is a film that I would like to, that I need to watch again because actually some of the, some of the things that I, that I like about it have kind of, uh, faded from memory since I first saw it, but other things have very much, uh, come to the forefront. Um, I mentioned before about Russell Banks and I think I have made this connection before. This film feels, though, yes, there are moments of action and stuff like that, this film feels like a Russell Banks uh, creation. Um, now, that doesn't, it isn't, uh, and so okay. <laughs> I shouldn't judge it on that level. But a lot of the things that I like about Russell Banks, who, for those that don't know, he wrote, um, the books I've read that he wrote, he wrote, uh, Continental Drift. He wrote Affliction. He wrote uh, The Sweet Hereafter. And I read one more of his books, and now it is escaping me which one it was. Damn, that's frustrating. Okay, sorry. Um, but he's a marvelous writer. And and there's a, a, an odd quality to him in that <clears throat> he writes books that are remarkably philosophical in the midst of just normal working class people doing normal working class things. Um, and that's what hell or high water feels like in many ways. It's just these two brothers are robbing banks so that they can, uh, get the money and buy back the family farm. And it's about the detective and his, and his partner that are trying to catch them. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. And so many of their scenes feel like that, uh, you know, are are simply that, uh, they feel like a, a fun chase movie or a fun heist movie or whatever it is, but not unlike something like, uh, I'd say the, the original, um, 1960 something, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, it finds a larger significance in what they're doing, not merely to the, the current economic climate, but also, uh, in, in the larger sense of just people trying to make sense of where they fit in the world and, and the, the role that they are playing and the role that they were always meant to play. Um, this, uh, which, which often play uh, can, can come into discussions of class. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are, if you are, uh, a lower class person, uh, by I'm talking economically, not as a person, um, <clears throat> If you are, um, if you are that, there is a certain feeling that what stamp can I make on this life? You know, what, nobody cares about me. Nobody pays attention to me. I'm going to have to take care of myself and I'm going to have to take care of my family. And, uh, 
and I think this is a film that very much uh, feels that, that very much expresses that these two guys that just feel like they've done everything right. Well, one guy has not, but feel like, you know, we've tried to do things the right way and the world just doesn't give a shit and we are just going to try it. So now, and in fact, not only has it not given a shit, but it has taken advantage of the things we don't know and the things that we've never been taught so that it can now get ahead in the form of these banks and stuff like that. And so they're, they're fighting against that and in doing so also trying to make, trying to make up for mistakes they might've made and trying to make their own mark on the world. Just as this lawman who's also in a situation, he's about to, he's about to retire and he's sort of trying to figure out, well, what, you know, what has my life amounted to as well? Yes, I've been, I've been chasing people and I've put away, you know, criminals and I've theoretically made the world a safer place, but here I am lonely and what am I going to do now that this is all over? So you just have all of these, it's a, it's a film about people who are kind of dealing with a certain, a certain level of existential crisis. And that's why the part of Jeff Bridges partner played by Gail Birmingham is Mm -hmm. so important because these are three white guys Mm -hmm. and there's a guy who's on the outside of that and can provide a little bit of perspective as well um, about like, Oh, Oh, I'm sorry that this has happened for you. That's unfortunate. Right. Let me explain what has happened to me or rather to people look that look like, right. me, you know? And so there's all of this going on while still being tremendous fun <clears throat> and still having, you know, this forward momentum as it would since it's a chase movie. Um, it's, uh, I would, I was surprised to hear you compare it to Russell Banks, but I think that's actually uh, a good comparison because Russell Banks movies tend to be about, or, or novels rather uh, are largely about character and community. <coughs> and I think there's something I think Hell or High Water is, um, and this is going back to my own personal, uh, you know, some personal feelings that I have, but, um, it's a, it's an, an example of how much great direction by David McKenzie and great performances by Jeff Bridges, Gil Birmingham, Chris Pine, and Ben Foster can bring to movie because Hell or High Water is written by Taylor Sheridan who made Sicario, mm-hmm. which I don't like. No. Uh, and I feel like, both of like uh, hell or high water might be the most overtly political movie, uh, you know, that we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, and I'm emphasis on overt because I think there's a version of hell or high water to be made. That's maybe a little bit more like Sicario where it's not particularly deep. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, but because you've got, um, David McKenzie's who, who had his last film he made in 2013 was starred up, which, um, yeah, which I didn't see. Yeah. You gotta see it, man. You'd love yeah. it. Um, has <coughs> a, a, a real eye for, you know, building a natural relatable worlds and communities. And then you've got the four actors I, who I just mentioned who yeah. are an absolutely, you know, um, I remember, uh, um, there's, a, I think it's like a DVD special feature from natural born killers, right? Okay. Where, um, Tom Sizemore talks about Oliver Stone talking to him and being like, okay, he's like, I've got in this movie, I've got Woody Harrelson. I've got Juliet Lewis. I've got Tommy Lee Jones and I've got Robert Downey Jr. I've got a sturdy four legged table. Are you sure? Like, and he's and he's and basically Tom Sizemore has like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fuck up your table, uh, Oliver. <laughs> but I I, and I saw that I say DVD special features. That was probably on like the special edition VHS that I had. Yeah. Uh, growing up, because I think about that so often when there's a movie like this mm-hmm. that has four 
main characters that I think of it as a sturdy table. Yeah. Uh, and they really do these, these four, uh, whole of the movie. It's a great movie. And I'm but, regretting not putting it higher. But let me suggest, uh, from a communal standpoint, think of all the, you know, one or two scene characters that all that seem to understand what these guys are doing, even if they are in opposition, it, they either understand what the brothers are doing, or what the law enforcement is doing. Yeah. And just, and you feel like at any moment the film could, uh, veer off and be about one of those people. And it would be just as interesting. Um, I, I realized, so the, the waitress, not, not Katie Mixon, but the, the older waitress, Margaret gets, Bowman. Uh, yeah. Who gets described as BP a, nominee. A, a rattlesnake. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize she's the same. She's the motel, uh, clerk in, no country for old men who, when he asks like, do you have a map of the rooms? And she says, well, we had a sort of one and pulls out that map. That's her. Uh, Cause I, I rewatched no country not that long ago. I did not realize that. But and then the one he says, but it's got two double beds. That one, you know, remember that lady? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's her. And now I'm second guessing myself. I'm pretty sure that's her. Cause I watched no country recently. I think that's her. Um, are you looking it up? I am. So you, you start talking. Uh, okay. Number five for me. That's her. Yeah. You're okay, right. good. Um, number five for me is certain women. Okay. Um, which, uh, this is going to be the toughest one for me to talk about for a couple reasons. One, because it's been over a year since I saw it. Um, but it's also, I remember when I saw it back at Sundance 2016, it being the one that I was having the hardest time writing a review of because there's, I, I think the movie is absolutely powerful and gorgeous, but it's also so quiet and still that I feel I have a hard time pulling what it is out of it and putting it into words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm having, I'm having a, a tough time, uh, here, but it's, uh, if you don't know, it's, it's a, it's an anthology, I guess it's, it's three short stories, um, that all, uh, take place in or around Livingston, Montana. Um, I guess the last one actually takes place four hours from Livingston, Montana. Cause that's a plot point, but, um, <laughs> uh, part of it does take place in Livingston. Um, and you'll see characters from each other's stories, you know, they, 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 they show up. There's sometimes, I mean, like with when Laura Dern shows up in the last one, it's just, a it's a very brief, it's, it's almost nothing. Whereas James LeGros plays a fairly large or he plays a significant part in Laura Dern's story and then a very large part in mm-hmm. Michelle Williams story. So there's overlap to different, different degrees. Um, but it's, um, I, I, I guess it, to me, it's about, and I feel like I'm cheapening it to say that it's a, you know, the, the title obviously, uh, implies that it's about women. All three of the leads well, are, are women. not all of them. Uh, <laughs> it's about certain women. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and there is something going on here where it's looking at, um, women in certain roles. Some of them traditionally feminine, feminine, like Michelle Williams character, who's, um, you know, would best be described as the wife. Mm-hmm. even though she's the lead of the movie, that's the role that she's playing is the wife and the mother. Um, whereas, um, you know, L- L- Laura Dern is a lawyer, which is not, which is a male dominated film field, even mm-hmm. if it's not necessarily masculine. Right. And then you've got Lady Gladstone, whose, whose character is, um, 
probably a lesbian and works as a farmhand, which is a traditionally masculine role. Um, and so you've got these very sort of um, quiet and not uh, overly flourished looks at how these women navigate their lives, both in the roles, lawyer, wife, farmhand they're in, and also what it means to be a female version of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's about so much more than that. that I, I feel like that's che- it's cheaping it to say, but that's one thing I can pull out and sort of uh, point to. Um, I think the, everyone who has seen it agrees that the third story, the Lily Gladstone story that also has Kristen uh, Stewart in it um, is the most powerful. And I can't really deny that. Um, and the Laura Dern one is, you know, great, largely by virtue of having Laura Dern in it, who's one of my, one of my favorite, uh, current actors and also has, uh, Jared Harris, uh, in it, um, and, you know, doing an American accent. Um, he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the second one is the one that I think that most people point, like, I think a lot of people, if you hear people say there's something they didn't like about the movie, it's the Michelle Williams, James, the um, and also, um, uh, what's his name? Rene Abergenois. Oh yeah. You know that actor, mm-hmm. the uh, older guy. Um, that's one that people tend to, people who don't like the movie don't like that because it's, you know, the, the premise of that story is mostly Michelle Williams listening to her husband negotiate buying some rocks from Rene Abergenois. It's, yeah. it does not have, it's not very plot heavy. Um, but it's the one that I keep like when I want to like uh, I when I want to watch it again. A large a large part of it is uh, I really want to revisit that Michelle Williams story. It's the <laughs> it's the most mysterious, um, and I want to know what's going on. And I think she's absolutely terrific uh, in the movie. And I, I'm just realizing I had two movies in a row, Manchester and Certain Women, in which uh, Michelle Williams is terrific. <laughs> All right. Next up for me. I'm sick of doing all the talking. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I got to see more movies. Well, you see plenty of movies, but because yeah. of school, you see <laughs> Hitchcock movies and yeah, that's true. Uh, and yeah, you want to talk about wagon master? I just saw wagon master. All right. Um, okay. Uh, number five for me, oddly enough is wagon master. <laughs> uh, no. So it is uh, Robert Eggers, the witch, oh, which I haven't seen. All right. All right. Now, Shoes on the other foot. The other foot. Now we'll might. see how you do up there without all the assistance. Uh, so um, <laughs> that's my second Seinfeld reference. Um, even though that Seinfeld reference is actually a uh, yeah. who is it? Buddy Clark. Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich. Who's Buddy Clark? That's not. I think I made that up. There's, there's Buddy guy, guy. There's Guy Clark. And there's Buddy Guy. Whoa, that's where I'm getting it. Buddy from. Guy Clark. Yeah. Um, Rest in peace. All of you. I would assume so. Right. Uh, so, okay, The Witch is such a, it's such a fascinating film. It feels like it's a miracle of a film. This is something you and I say every once in a while. Like, there's a, mm-hmm. a film that just, like, how on earth did this get greenlit? How on earth did people just continue to make it? But, like, in a good way. Um, now, and obviously it did not have a very high budget. It's an independently made film. But it's so perfectly realized uh yes it it predominantly takes place around you know on and around this small ranch in the midst of a forest uh in the i would say 1600s maybe 1700s i don't remember exactly um and it's just this very pious families uh quite possibly so pious that uh it was kicked out of a uh 
kicked out of like a, a New England mm-hmm. uh, Christian settlement. Like that. Like the Puritans kicked them out. Yeah. Think about that. (laughs) So that's who we're dealing with. Uh, And so immediately you would assume that, okay, these are not going to be fun people to watch. And I mean, it's not necessarily fun, but I naturally assume that this is just going to be a film all about religious hypocrisy and, uh, and these people are going to have no real love for one another, but that is not true. They do seem to genuinely care about one another and they do want to, um, really, uh, they want to do the right thing religiously. They want to do the right thing economically and, uh, relationally. And in the midst of this, they are now under siege from, uh, a, a witch, Mm -hmm. um, and just, and just, evil forces and each family member individually deals with this in a different way. And, uh, they each want to keep to themselves because partially because they feel like maybe their own reactions are a bit shameful. Uh, but they also still need to interact with one another. So it really is just like this, excuse me, this fascinating little family drama in the midst of a supernatural, a period supernatural thriller. Uh, it is, a very specific type of horror movie, which is to say a horror movie that would bother most horror, modern horror fans. Um, it's very quiet. It takes its time. It's definitely much more of a drama in many ways, but there is of course the, the dread and just the, the, the crafting of this world. Um, and the idea that, okay, so a few years ago I saw into the woods, the, the uh, musical, Oh, right. Which is not very good. And one of my big problems with it was that uh, the woods didn't feel real to me. And as much as I hate to say like, oh, this location is like another character. I hate when people say that. I think they say it just as a way of saying like, hey, look how much time we put into art direction (laughs) as opposed to crafting real characters. Um, I love the the joke in um, what's the the David Wayne movie that I loved. They came together yeah. where they repeatedly insist. <laughs> yes. In the, it's almost the, like New York, New York is like another character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I will say that if you're going to make a movie about the woods, whether it could be a comedy, it could be a musical, it could be a horror movie, the woods themselves need to, if, if not be a character, they, there needs to be a living quality to them. They need to sort of envelop you and welcome you in. I feel like Lord of the Rings does that very well into the woods. Never really did oddly, which is ironic given the title. It does not bring you into the woods. The witch absolutely does. Like you just, it's weird. You're out in the open air and yet this film feels completely suffocating, uh, and very, um, uh, claustrophobic in a lot of ways. Uh, the moments where there is something genuinely frightening going on when they're encountering this, witch. uh, are, are deeply disturbing. Uh, the performances all around are, are, uh, astonishing. And I will say that Robert Eggers, like his, his decision to write this the way he did, which is in, in old English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just sticks to it knowing full well that he is going to alienate a good portion of his audience. But I just, I have such respect for the way he made this movie. And I, I don't know if this is, if it's been, a, if it's official or if it's still going on, but there's been, I believe there was an announcement at some point that he was going to be directing uh, an adaptation of Nosferatu. And if that's the case, I don't usually, I'm not usually in favor of stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but uh, I couldn't be more excited because this is the absolute right person to remake any classic horror. 
um, and do it justice while also bringing in very specific uh, themes uh, that I think can relate to to modern audiences. It's a fabulous film, and if you're a horror if you're a horror fan, I think you'd like it. Um, but you also you also have to recognize it is not your standard horror film. All right, um, number what are we on? Four. Four for me. Because uh, you just did number five. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, number four for me is Julia Hart's Miss Stevens, which I know you didn't see because uh, no one saw it. No one saw it. Although uh, it is on Netflix. Check it out. Do yourself a favor. It's, you know, unlike some of the movies I was talking about before with like like American Honey and, and The Handmaiden that are, you know, ep- epic length. The Everything about Miss Stevens, part of why I like it so much is everything about it is very small. It's a very, it's a very small... Um, uh, unassuming movie that manages to be breathtaking uh, in its in its intimacy and in its loveliness. It's such. I mean, I don't mean that it's like a nice movie the way that like you know your parents say like you know I just want to watch a nice movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I think I might have just uh, stolen that from a recent Onion. Uh, headline uh, possibly I think that was that's why that was in my head i gotta give credit it's Christ also to. a thing my mom has said many times okay um uh it, it's the the story lily rabe um who's uh, a, a wonderful actress uh plays a um high school uh, english teacher named miss stevens um her school the, the school that she teaches at no longer has a drama program but there's some kids who are involved in you know, extracurricular, uh, theater and stuff. And there's this, um, competition that a few of the kids, uh, want to, want to go to, um, that's a weekend long at a hotel, um, thing. Uh, and they want to go to compete. And so Miss Stevens, uh, uh, agrees to be the, the chaperone teacher who's going to mm-hmm. take them. And so the movie just takes place over the course of, uh, of this, of this weekend. Um, and I, it's i don't want to go to i don't want to go too deep into story because it's really just um it's a it's a it's a character piece and it's a multi-level character piece because it's about miss stevens herself um and uh i think her level of uh unhappiness um and the fact that she um has recently lost her mother. Um, but then it's also about the kid, specifically the main, the, the main kid, uh, or he emerges as the main kid is played by Timothy Chalamet, who, uh, was just recently in, uh, call me by your name, which, uh, was my favorite movie that I saw at Sundance and who I think is going to be, uh, is, is one to watch. Um, but I, um, uh, I get to say that I knew who he was before Call sure. Me By Your Name because uh, I was one of the 10 people who saw <laughs> Miss Stevens. Um, and it's in, do you, I, I don't know if this is condescending of me, Tyler, but you have more experience as an actor. Okay. Um, is it condescending of me to be especially surprised when a good performance comes from a teenage actor? Do you know what I mean? As opposed to a child actor or adult actor? Um, 
even more, I mean, a child, yeah, even more a child actor, but as opposed to an adult actor, like is, is it, is it kind of sending to say like Timothy Chalamet is great in this movie, especially given how young he is. I would say, I don't think that's, okay. that's condescending. I think it makes sense that, you know, if a, if an actor is drawing on their own experiences or just their own, just things that they've ga- gathered over the years, then it stands to reason that the, fewer years they have than, you know, for them to be able to think so abstractly as to, uh, be able to craft these emotions. Yeah. Then, yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I was astonished by Harvey Scrimshaw in the witch uh, and last year, Jacob Tremblay in, yeah. in room. Okay. You know? Well, Timothy Chalamet, uh, uh, again, I don't want to go too much into plot cause this isn't really a plotty movie, but, um, just know that his character is dealing with some mental health issues, which again, for a young, for a greener actor, there's a lot of pitfalls there. Yeah. Um, for any actor, there's a lot of pitfalls right. there. Uh, but he, uh, he, he keeps it, um, he keeps it about the character first and, and about the, uh, uh, I don't think they ever call it manic depression. Maybe they do, but, um, I think that's what it's about. It's supposed to be that sort of thing. Um, it's about that second. It's, he's not, a character he's not playing the character as being defined by his bipolar disorder he's embodying bipolar disorder in the way that he is because of who he is mm-hmm. so uh great performances all around it's a lovely little movie 86 minutes long i looked up the uh 86 minutes and available on netflix yeah yeah get on it people yeah you'd, you'd be you had to be a fucking idiot not to watch this movie <laughs> well done all right my number four is denis villeneuve's arrival uh, now I did not necessarily love prisoners. I did not care for enemy and there are things that I liked about Yeah, I, I responded to a lot about prisoners and then I responded to a lot in Sicario, but I, I always felt that he was a, a, a director who dealt much more in style than in substance, but seemed to think he was dealing in substance. Um, yeah. would you say that's, uh, about right so uh, especially, prisoners especially it, yeah i think that's maybe yeah that is about right or maybe he just i don't know that he thought he was dealing with substance as much as i think like what i was talking about with not liking sicario mm-hmm. uh i think there's a certain amount and this is probably true in arrival too of him just letting the screenplay do most of the work and sure. not and and just like and not um uh, not em- embellishing or digging deeper uh, onto the, into those kind of things. And maybe the fact that Arrival is yeah, the first in the new movie that I like uh, is yeah. because it's maybe the best screenplay that he's had. Uh, yeah, I think maybe not unlike Nicholas winning Refn for me, where when you have this style coincide with a good, with, with a very specific type of story it, everything clicks. Mm-hmm. Denis Villeneuve is a good sci-fi director. It's just, it took him a while to get to sci-fi. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. And so, because I do think that there is a certain patience to the way he makes movies and just a willingness to allow a scene to really sit, um, which is something that, that you need for sci-fi. Um, yeah. and so, you know, to me, the scene that, that really won me over, is fairly early in the film. I, I liked it up until this moment, but the scene where Amy Adams' character is first going into the shell, was it called? Yeah, I think that's what they call it, yeah. Um, and she's understanding the weird gravity in there for the first time. Mm-hmm. 
that scene goes on for a long time. As it should, mm-hmm. she's go- she's going inside a spacecraft which has its own gravity. That's got to be very strange, <laughs> and the film allows her to have that awe. It allows her to reorient herself, and in doing so, it allows us that as well. So his 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 choice to because that's that's not a pure script decision. Mm-hmm. As a director, sure. you can you can burn through that pretty quickly, and I'll, and you could almost treat it like, oh my gosh, this is cool, and it is cool, but it's also uh, very intimidating, and so so his choice, I think he has very good instincts for sci-fi, and but I think he also, and this is a function of the actors, is a function of the the screenplay and of and of the director as well. Um, and of the genre, you know, sci-fi can feel very cold, but it's not an unemotional genre. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's, I think it just deals with emotions on a more psychological, more clinical level, um, as we see in stuff like Solaris. But, uh, and in this, we're telling an emotional story, but we don't know that it's an emotional story. Uh, we're, we are thinking that, you know, that Amy Adams' character needs to get over not not get over. Yeah, but I, I want to dance around because yeah. this is a movie that has a le, like right. a the legit like twist. Yes, that um, was very effective. Very effective. Um, but I don't. And so, yeah, and I, uh, I I'll don't. try not to spoil it. But like, yeah, I'll try to I'll try to speak vaguely. Um, but there's some stuff that she's dealing with, and it feels as though she needs to compartmentalize it in order to mm-hmm. to deal with what she's dealing with. But not unlike something like Signs, I would say. Uh, it's like, no, 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 all of this is connected, and it will continue to be connected. And the more she recognizes that it is connected, the more effective she will be in her, in her task. Uh, and I, I, I like Signs, but I want to say I think it does that even better, because Signs is so... The, the the connections are a little a little they're very forced in yes. signs where whereas part of the reason the twist in arrival works so well uh for me is because it 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 all makes organic sense coming yes, out of the story does. as we've learned it so far it's it really is like the perfect kind of of twist where it's not like it's not like um it's because it, because because the clues are all there you know what yeah. i mean that's the it's it's that kind of twist where it's uh it's shocking and no one probably would have would have guessed it yeah but once it's there you're like oh of course yes um but i don't want to cheapen it by reducing it to the twist i just want to right i want to highlight a movie that actually does that well because there's so many movies that have dumb twists where it's like well i wouldn't have guessed that because that's stupid yes. like if the point is just to shock me by having the most shocking twist then really anyone could do that just like yeah. come up with something out of left field to to to, to drop on the audience i'm spending way too much time in the twist but i really like well, how arrival does it it does it does feel as though to call it a twist is is to cheapen it it's a it's a mm-hmm. development and right. it's a, and it's one, one could even say a payoff um, except it's a payoff that, and you don't totally know what the build up is and then once it pays off, everything falls into place. It is, it's like the last piece of a puzzle. Um, and it's just a, a, and it's something that I think can be like, like the best sci-fi it addresses very human concerns and, and what it means to be human and to live the lives that we live. And arrival absolutely does that. And, uh, 
does it in a way that, as you said, is organic and and unfolds in a way that uh, I feel like is natural and satisfying and engaging and but never pan, never pandering and it's 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 always challenging and it just it's it's a wonderfully written film uh and just i don't know Denis Villeneuve while i'm not thrilled at the idea of a second blade runner film mm. uh him locking into sci-fi i think is a good idea i would yeah. like him to do sci-fi and and horror like overt horror yeah. and i think we will have found where he belongs that Blade Runner movie is going to be bad, though. I feel like it, it would have to. First off, it's like, well, I guess Deckard's not a replicant, right? Well, maybe he could he could be a different Boo. breed of a replicant. But um, yeah, it's going to be bad. I, I saw the teaser before John Wick Two, which I'm sure people have seen the teaser by now. Mm-hmm. But I don't watch trailers very often, uh, and it does look cool until Harrison Ford shows up, and it's like that's what you wore to work that day, isn't it? Like, why is he not like <laughs> yeah. Blade Runner has cool costumes. The first one, right. Yeah. And Ryan Gosling seems to have a cool costume in this one. Yeah. Why is he just in like his workout t-shirt? Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> uh, I guess I'll have to uh, watch that again. I don't think I remember that. Yeah. It's, it's just like, a, like literally like a Heather gray crew neck, like yeah. that anyone would, <laughs> you could buy him, you know, you get six in a pack at target. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, number three. Number three for me. Um, I don't know. I don't think this is going to be on your list because we've gotten so close to the end, which is kind of a bummer to me. Uh, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson. It is not, no. That's, the, uh, that's too bad, obviously. Um, I liked it so much I consider it my third favorite movie of the year. Wow. <laughs> it's really something. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, I, I found this movie to be uh, incredibly moving. Um, I think I can now predict your second and first now. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I wonder if we, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, again, it, this is kind of like a certain women thing where I don't want to just talk about the superficial lessons of the movie, um, w- which are about, um, it's, it's a movie that looks at different types of creativity. Um, because, uh, Patterson, the character, has this very rigid protocol, right, and routine of, um, wait, have you, you haven't seen it yet? No, I saw it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, um, but you know what I'm talking about. Like, he, mm-hmm. that's what the movie's about. It's, it takes place over the course of a week, and he does largely the same thing every day, and he fits in his writing at certain, he writes poetry, and it fits in at certain times, um, whereas his wife, played by Golshifta Farahani, um, every time he comes home from work, she's doing something else. She's painting yeah. something. She's learning to play guitar. There's, she's making, uh, she, she's, she's baking or like she has some other creative input, uh, output. And I think the first couple times I started to think that it was kind of a cheap joke. And I was like, Oh, like this character is just a punchline. Yeah. But as it went on and that kept happening, I realized, I, I think that it's something Jim Jarmusch is doing on purpose is showing that, um, different people are creative in different ways, which goes back to the Patterson character who you don't think of the guy who drives the bus as being uh, a really skilled poet. Right. Um, and that's, it's bad that we don't think of people like that. It's bad that we define people in certain uh, non-creative uh, jobs by their, <laughs> by their job, you know, today, in fact, 
uh, Jen and I had uh, a handyman come over and do some stuff that theoretically I should be able to do, but whatever. Uh, you know, as uh, who is it? Is it uh, is it John Mulaney? I forget who it was. Anyway, some comedian was talking about. Uh, uh, oh no, it was Tommy Johnigan who just talked about like. Uh, sitting at home and like a handyman comes over and he's like, Oh wait, wait, what, what do you need me for? Aren't you, can't you do this? Like you think so, but no, I can't. Um, and, uh, but no, so this, uh, handyman came over and he is a stand up comedian. And so mm. he and I talked about, you know, uh, doing stand up and some of the people he knows, some of the people that I know. And it was just very, you know, and it was strange, uh, but it shouldn't be, you know, especially in Los Angeles where, People are people who are doing one job often are working towards something else and are probably doing it right now. Um, right, yeah. But it was, but it did remind me of Patterson in the moment. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I used to work for uh, as a temp. I would sometimes work uh, overnight, 11, 11 p.m. to eight a.m. Uh, sitting at a desk just because there was, this is was a place that got deliveries all night, mm-hmm. and so I just had to be there to make sure people like to accept packages and make sure people signed <laughs> or or to sign for the packages. That, that was kind of great. It was. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but then, so it was me and then there'd be secure, a couple of security guards and mm-hmm. one of the security guards who was probably his mid fifties. Um, and, um, it was a few nights before I really started to talk to him and then realized like he was super into like fantasy literature and like weird historical, like speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. And so we would just talk about novels and yeah. it was, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's condescending to be surprised by that. But yet we, we all seem to be, yeah. uh, and Patterson's a movie that, um, I think very blatantly makes the argument that, that, uh, um, that, that, that we shouldn't make such assumptions. Um, but also it argues for the, and this is something that speaks to me. Um, the idea that you can have creativity and structure at the same time, because I'm a person, as I've talked about before, who has routines for everything, um, to the point where it's sometimes damaging. Um, uh, but the idea that you're not robbing yourself of creativity by following, um, uh, a certain path and, and, and following a, a schedule every day. In fact, that might be for some people, the best way to, to output. Um, but in addition to that, you've got, um, the the real Jim Jarmusch touch um, that I think we'd been missing um, from like uh, even though I loved uh, Only Lovers Left Alive and I didn't uh, I was on the fence about the limits of control um, but uh, I was glad to have another Jim Jarmusch movie where I laughed consistently mm-hmm. um, and Only Lovers Left Alive, Only Lovers Left Alive does have jokes in it um, but yeah. you know it's about vampires these aren't like <laughs> you know, they're not run of the mill jokes. <laughs> yeah. These are either, but, um, um, Patterson is a, uh, um, consistently funny movie, uh, and, and beautifully composed, um, sort of like, uh, uh I think an, an easy comparison to make and uh, Frederick Elms is the cinematographer. An easy comparison to make is, um, because of the structure of the movie is to compare it to compare to, uh, Jean Delmon, you know, sure. that movie that has the long title, uh, that I'm already, I'm sure I already pronounced the first two words of it wrong. I'm not yeah. going to keep going. Um, and, uh, uh, and aesthetically it takes that approach too, where it sort of, it's like, we're going to be looking at this, this character do the same things every day. So we're also going to repeat the same framing. 
every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. And think the framing, you only get new perspectives when new shit happens. Like a guy coming into the bar with a fake gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I've gone on too long, but, uh, Patterson is uh, really beautiful and touching to me. Um, and I, Again, maybe this is just an emotional year for me. Uh, it definitely was post-election, but I saw Patterson before the election. Um, but this is also a movie. The the scene at the end on the park bench with the Japanese guy, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? Uh, it got me. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I teared up at, at that scene. Yeah, uh, me too. Which, And normally, I think I would be rather cynical about that scene and see it as like a deus ex machina. But uh, but it's it's handled so well that it didn't. Yeah bother me at all yeah all right number three number three is manchester by the sea okay so this was my number six as you recall indeed uh and i believe this is the only overlap in our top 10 that's gonna be true isn't it yeah wow that's i don't know if that's ever happened before yeah that's yeah that's rare um so i guess that speaks to it being a good movie here um manchester by the sea is a f- I love Kenneth Lonergan. You can count on me as something of a revelation. Uh, and then Margaret is also uh, astonishing. And Manchester by the Sea is a film that, okay, so many years ago uh, when I would write uh, like little skits for my church, uh, I had something of a little uh, f- a little manifesto for myself, which is uh, never have the characters do things right, uh, <laughs> or at least never have them end on the note that they that we as Christians think they should. Have them come close to getting things right. Have them come close to coming to the right uh, realization, and then have them violently veer away from it at the end, so that people uh, walk away frustrated. <laughs> um, because I, I had this thought that. If, if a person, a person can watch something and feel, and if things go well, if things go right, uh, then the audience member can say like, oh, that was a nice story. Well, on with my life. But if something is frustrating, if somebody sees how things could have gone right and they don't, then that person is left with, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, emotional blue balls. Uh, and so there, there must be a better term. <laughs> there's gotta be a better term. Uh, I apologize. I'm sick. And so, um, in the head, right. David, I suffer from depression as you know, <laughs> and I don't think you should make light of it. Uh, anyway, so, uh, I do actually have depression, everybody. Uh, I'm not trying to no, make light make, of it. Too. Now you're not making light. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, Manchester by the Sea is a film that, if it were a different movie, every th- all paths would lead to a very specific ending. Mm-hmm. But Kenneth Lonergan doesn't do that. He needs he crafts characters so precisely, and then spends the the rest of the film being true to those characters undoubtedly rooting for them to do the right thing, but then also questioning what the right thing looks like for these specific characters, mm-hmm. recognizing that we all have an idea of what the right thing is, uh, might be. And I don't necessarily mean the moral thing. I mean the right thing, like logistically and relationally, but then saying like, okay, well, yes, that might be the right thing in a, in a broad sense, but who are these characters that we're watching? Does the right thing actually work for them? as they are right mm-hmm. now. That's what 
that's that's the way you can count on me ends. Margaret actually does have something of a nice cathartic ending, uh, except it's not the one you expect it uh, to have. And so this, it does, it doesn't give you the ending that that nine movies out of ten mm-hmm. would give you, uh, because it's the that's not the way these characters operate. Uh, and so I find myself feeling frustrated because, Oh, if only they would just get over quote unquote, you know, quote unquote, get over these things that they are dealing with. But then when you realize what they're dealing with, how could you ever get over that? Yeah. You know, it's a film very much about self forgiveness, not unlike Rachel getting married or iron weed or Mm -hmm. something like that. And so, yeah, how could you ever get over that? Um, I don't know if I could, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 in fact, I know me and I know I couldn't, uh, for reasons that I alluded to a moment ago. Um, and so it's, it, when you think about the main character played by Casey Affleck, it's ever given what he has experienced and what he is responsible for. It is everything. It takes everything he has to just live life mm-hmm. much less put himself in a similar position to what, to where he was before. And so like, it's, it's a film that I've said it not on, I'd say I think I've said before that Kenneth Lonergan is like the, is, is sort of the natural successor to like Mike Lee in an intense love for his characters, but an honest love. He knows their limitations and he will depict them as honestly as possible. And so this is just a a film that is remarkably honest and amusing at times, but also intensely sad other times. And the idea, and the idea that these two things don't have to be at odds. Yeah. It's very funny in the way that life can be. Yeah, it's and and how desperate you need laughs when you're dealing with some of this stuff. Um, and it just as someone that has, you know, uh, it, I, when we when we talked about Nebraska, I think we talked about that. It's a film that depending on where you are in your life, hmm. you could see things from Will Forte's character right. standpoint yeah. or Bruce Dern. And I'd say I am actually at a moment in my life where I'm in between. I have definitely seen things from the point of view of Lucas Hedges character. And I'm certain mm-hmm. I certainly have not been where Casey Affleck's character is, but I am closer in age to him. And I have a general idea of, of how I would, and I have enough regret in my life that I can understand where he's coming from in certain regards. And so being able to see it from both of their perspectives at this particular moment in my life really, uh, help the film to have even more resonance with me. And it's just, it, it, unsurprisingly, it's a film that really got me. Um, so Kenneth Lonergan was a, uh, uh, playwright mm-hmm. before, um, he started writing and directing movies. Um, and I'm gonna go the long way around here. Okay. The word playwright is not playwright or W R I T E. Mm-hmm. It's playwright W R. I G H T like mm-hmm. a shipwright, like someone who builds something. Yeah. And I think that's, um, a really good clue as to, uh, figuring out like what, what it is that's so great about Kenneth Lonigan's movies, because he makes movies that are very sort of ground level, intimate, domestic. They're about, they're not about things that are, that we generally think of as grand. They're not about, you know, war or like, you know, yeah. uh, not about monsters or anything like that, but he 
piece by piece, he puts these movies together into which they become mammoth. Like yeah. Margaret and, and this one especially are like, as a whole, they're like operatic, they're epic movies, but yeah. at moment to moment, they're just f- filled with small, honest moments. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I think that, um, I guess we should maybe give him more credit. Uh, and not you and I, uh, uh, give him plenty of, uh, of credit, but I just, I, I think that's, it's a type of storytelling that, um, I'd like to see more of. I feel like if you look at, I guess if you go back to, you know, we talked about like years when in, in the past, when like Kramer versus Kramer was one of the highest grossing movies of the yeah. year. Like what happened to that? Like, why don't we have a, a patience or a tolerance for that kind of filmmaking anymore as a nation? Listen to this. Uh-huh. So in my film history class, we just watched best years of our lives, uh-huh. which is a marvelous film, obviously. Yeah. That was the highest grossing film of that year. Uh-huh. And it was in general box office, second only to gone with the wind. And then other movies obviously would come to replace it. And okay, yeah. uh, remarkably so gone with the wind adjusted for inflation is the highest grossing movie of all time. So for a while, best years of our lives, a three hour uh-huh. domestic drama about uh, world war two veterans coming home. Yeah. It's to, not a war movie. It's not a war movie. <laughs> yeah. It's about people bringing the war with them. And, and it's, it's remarkably sad at times. And again, three hours long. And for a while it was second only to gone with the wind, which has not retained, which has not lost its box office over the years. That is what things used to be. Yeah. And I hate to be an asshole about it, but like, Um, yeah, like there's, I think you're, I think it's so interesting that you, that you, talked about the way that Lonergan builds mm-hmm. things. He sets, you're absolutely right. He sets a wonderful foundation. He builds a world. Now it's the world we live in, mm-hmm. but it's the specific world of these characters. Every, it feels so lived in, you know, every word that the, even, even, uh, I, I feel like Tate Donovan does such a great job as, uh, the coach, the, the kids hockey. Coach. Oh, right. Yeah. And so like, even, even little two scene characters like that, where when he's talking with Matthew Lucas Broderick. Hedges, Matthew Broderick, yeah, yeah, like you get a whole sense of who they are and what they bring, not yeah. merely of themselves, but also in their relationship with these characters, with the main characters. It's just like he just works so hard on on creating a, a shared history. Uh, in the midst uh, with all these characters. Like I totally believe that that is like as an uncle to mm-hmm. uh, to a kid who is now uh, 15, like, wow. Yeah. Like I, I saw some of the dynamic now, obviously mm-hmm. things are very different, yeah, different, situation. uh, different situation, but like I saw that a very specific dynamic, there's, there's a, a certain tone that is hit between like uncles and nephews and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's just, it, it really is, um, an astonishing feat of a film. Uh, and the last thing I want to point out is, uh, I, because I've been talking about cinematography this whole time, I feel like another thing that, not just kind of long but movies like this don't get enough credit for being beautiful because, mm-hmm. uh, we we have expectations about, uh, yeah. cinematography that maybe calls a little bit of attention to itself. Um, but you know, 
I keep saying this because so many of the movies we're talking about are things that I saw uh, at, at Sundance. Um, it was a great first Sundance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw, you know, it's been over a year since I've seen this movie and there are a number of images that uh, that I can recall, you know, uh, is, is easily as, as can be. Um, especially, I mean, the shot of the, of the boat that's in the trailer that, you yeah. know, uh, that the movie comes back to, um, at least once or maybe twice. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, no, no spoilers, but there's a shot in the lobby of a police station, uh, which is, um, something that I, can't close my eyes without seeing yeah. it. De- definition of harrowing. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And then there is a shot that I've, I've seen used a lot in the publicity and uh, understandably. So it's a shot that I do think of, which is Lucas hedges walking along this wrought iron fence with a stick. And he's just uh-huh. kind of, and he, as he's walking along, he's just like bouncing the stick along. And then you realize again, it's pure, pure visual. You realize that, Oh, this is, this is the fence of a graveyard and oh, he's right. heading yeah. into the graveyard to see if the ground is unfrozen enough so that they can actually bury his father. And like, it's just such a, it's a beautiful shot. Yeah. Um, but it's un, but it's unsensational. So nobody would ever think of it in that way. So is it, um, time for me to do my number two of the year? Yes. Do you have, a, do you have a guess? I do have a guess. I wonder if I should let you guess because if you're wrong, then it'll be a bummer. Okay. All right. I will make a mental guess and I'll let you know if I'm right. Okay. Number two of the year for me, Pablo Lorraine's Neruda. Oh, I'm incorrect. You knew it was going to be a foreign language movie. Yes. You thought it was going to be Tony Erdman. I did. Yeah. Tony Erdman's a great movie. Didn't okay. make the list. I see. That's why I didn't want to let you guess, but you know what? I was the, afraid it was going to be, t- you but thought you know it was going to be Tony Erdman. I should have thought Neruda because you've taught, you talk about it incessantly <laughs> really yeah. off putting. I mean, this is the now year. Here we go again. Uh, uh, the, w- w- here's something else that I've said incessantly that 2016 is full of directors who made two movies. Right. Um, and in the, a number of cases, now the Jim Jarmusch one, I expected to like Patterson more than give me danger. And I did, but, um, with Jeff Nichols, uh, I'd like, I like midnight special more than loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with Pablo Lorraine, I like Neruda more than Jackie. Um, I mean, Jackie's within it's, it's within the top 20. It's uh, I, I do think Jackie's a terrific movie, but, uh, Neruda, um, is just, it's just catnip for, for old David here. It's, um, uh, and the movies couldn't, they're both biopics technically, but they couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, I guess one of them could be an animated or something that would be more different. Uh, <laughs> uh, being hyperbolic. Yeah. Uh, it's a rhetorical tool. Um, <laughs> uh, Neruda is a biopic in name only. Um, and in fact, as I said, uh, recently, uh, on a couple weeks ago on the podcast, it's about Pablo Neruda kind of in name only. I mean, he's a big part of it. Obviously the story wouldn't exist without him. In fact, the lead character wouldn't exist without Pablo Neruda, but, um, it, it's a movie that I think I've seen it twice now holds up to repeat. Like it, it gets better on, uh, it improves with repeat viewings, um, because it's intentionally, um, uh, cagey about what kind of movie it is at first, because it's called Neruda and it's being presented as this biopic of Pablo Neruda, or at least mm-hmm. of this, this part, there's a part in his life because Pablo Neruda was in addition to being a poet was also a Senator, a Senator, uh, of in, in Chile of the communist party. And, um, at one point the communist party became outlawed and all of their, um, uh, you know, ranking officials were criminals and were rounded up. And so there's a, uh, a period of time where Pablo Neruda is 
on the run. He's in Chile. He's hiding out. He eventually escaped Chile and um, moved to to France. Uh, that's that happens at the very end of the movie. Spoiler, but you know it's on the Wikipedia page <laughs> or whatever. Um, that's not. It's not the point. Um, it takes place over the course of this time when he was in hiding, being shuttled around from sort of sympathetic sympathizer to sympathizer, hiding him in, in these apartments or homes uh, across uh, Chile. And it eventually, like as the movie goes on, I don't know if this is true to the real Pablo Neruda's story, if this is the path that he took, but it becomes more and more uh, rural as it goes on. Um, and the look of the movie changes um, because of that. So much of the early movie uh, what happens is the, the movie invents this character, um, literally, uh, I think, uh, depending on your reading, um, played by Gael Garcia Bernal, who's arguably the real um, lead of the movie, who's the uh, inspector, Pelicheneau is his name, and he's the one tasked by the by the president with, um, with tracking down Pablo Neruda. Um, and so the movie starts off feeling very much like a, like, 1940s detective noir type 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 of type of thing especially with Gary Garcia Bernal's like fedoras and and his you know peak lapels and like very his his uh, his outfits are amazing but as it goes on it becomes eventually like a uh a snowy western because when you're getting down into Patagonia that's what the landscape is like um and I think there's something about that uh, I think that that amorphous quality of the type of movie it is um, is a clue as to what the, or, or is in concert with what the screenplay is doing, which is making you think, OK, this is a cat and mouse type of like caper, you know, that's based in reality. But it also becomes more and more apparent that um, I, I mentioned Pelicino as an invented character. There was actually a real Oscar Pelicino, but he didn't do this and he wasn't even, I think uh, part of the police force anymore by this point. Um, but you come to realize and eventually someone states it outright to him that he doesn't actually exist. And he has been conjured up by mm-hmm. Neruda, like Pablo Neruda needs a foil uh, and he's a writer. So he's written, this sort of perfect foil, you know? Um, and so it, in a lot of ways that I think based on movies you've liked in the past, I think you would respond very well to this. It's about, uh, narrative conventions and why we, um, need them, why these archetypes are, are important, um, and, and, and useful to telling stories. Hmm. Uh, but it also has just, it's a very, it's a surprisingly funny movie as well. Um, because not being real, uh, Pelicino is actually a pretty fucking terrible detective. <laughs> and so yeah. there, there's, it's kind of a, like a, a, a running joke of him, like fucking up and missing Neruda here or there or whatever. Uh, and also the fact that he's, he's the narrator before he's even been introduced, uh, and also might not exist. So there's some, you know, ironic distance there with, uh, with that going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the guy, I, I, I'm not mentioning, uh, Luis Nuki, Noki. I can't remember. Uh, the actor who plays Pablo Neruda is also, uh, fantastic. And, um, he really gets the, um, the comedy as well. He's playing Neruda pretty broad. Um, at one point he's, he's literally broad in that he's dressed as a woman. <laughs> um, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a very fun movie. It's like if, if what I'm describing sounds overly heady, 
um, keep in mind that it's also a very fun and funny uh, movie with a sort of a lot of a very active camera. Heady but fun. Here we go. My number two is Yorgos Lanthimos's The Lobster. The Lobster. Heady but fun. Uh, <clears throat> have you seen it? Yeah. Okay. So. I'll give you a guess as to where I saw it. I'm going to say like probably like an AMC theater like two weeks ago. No, actually it was at Sundance. Last year. Oh, wow. like everything okay. else. I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> so it would appear that Sundance has replaced uh, critic screening uh, <laughs> as far as where you I, see pl- things. 2016 was just a great Sunday. It gave me like, I, I saw a little over a dozen movies and most of them are movies that I'm still talking about a year later, either in good ways or bad. Greasy strangler. Um, Oof, yeah. Um, right. Sorry, but the lobster. You know, uh, uh, I, th- I think I mentioned this to you that a um, a uh, classmate of mine wrote his final paper about the Greasy Strangler. Yeah, um, I'd like to read it. I was, yeah, I, I, maybe I'll ask him and uh, I can forward it on to you. But um, anyway, so okay, The Lobster. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic film on every single level. It, to me, it rivals something, and this is high praise. It rivals something like Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Oh yeah, yeah. I, um, I believe when I did a more than one lesson episode about it, I think actually that was the the uh, companion film, um, which I only now just remember. So uh, apparently, I, like I connect those two uh, <laughs> in the like a, a complete crafting of a world, and then a slow but sure reveal of the different working elements of that world, um, <clears throat> and and it's just such a. And with each new reveal, there's a new laugh. I mean, just, I can't like, and it's such a specific type of comedy, the comedy of absurdity that no one treats as absurd. You know, it's not unlike, it's like a funny twilight zone. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, where Nobody questions the idea that in this society you need to be part of a couple. Otherwise you're going to be turned into an animal. Yeah. Like nobody questions the absurdity of that. Uh, Oh, sorry. Except for the people that say, okay, this is a ridiculous way to live. Instead, we will live in a way that you will never be with anybody. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a world. And we only listen to techno music. And we only, (laughs) yeah. And just like it's one extreme people fight one extreme with another. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I actually really love about the film that other people don't. People love the first half of the film. And then when our characters break away from this this hotel um, and they go and live with like these outsiders, that's when people are like, eh, it's, yeah, it kind of falls apart. I'm like, no, that's when it thematically solidifies. Yeah. That's when you realize that no, 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 the dogmatic element of the hotel the specifics might be different, but the attitude is there. People making rules for how you relate to one another. Um, and also that's the part with the great, uh, Leia Sidhu, who's yes. one of my favorite, uh, up there with, uh, Laura Dern is one of my favorite working actors. I, uh, I submitted her in the supporting actress ca- category for the BPs, but not enough other people had seen, uh, the lobster. Um, and so this idea that, you know, uh, one thing that, that, gets to me and actually this plays into my number one film as well is the way people in society 
uh, I say Western society, the way they deal with negative emotions or negative life experiences. It could be, um, you know, I just, I mentioned watching the best years of our lives, which is mm-hmm. all about people trying to doing their best to pretend that something didn't happen to you. Um, so it could be like the loss of a loved one. It could be a, a breakup. Uh, it could be, uh, illness. It could be whatever it is. Um, and our natural tendency is like, I'd rather not deal with that in you. I will try to say something that will make you feel better in some capacity, or at least make you feel better long enough for me to then go away. Um, and then you can feel bad again when I'm gone. But right now I don't feel like dealing with this overwhelming thing that you've experienced. Um, you know, I, like I had a, a, a friend recently whose, uh, wife cheated on him and you know, it's, I've not experienced that. And I just, not with you though. What was that? <laughs> what? She didn't cheat on with you, right? Uh, that's an off mic conversation. Um, but no, and it's, it's, and I myself wanted to like say something to make him feel better, but there's no better to be felt there. There is only anger and sadness and betrayal. And, and there's, and in that moment it's, it's, it's like, I felt like I wanted to help, but there's no help to be had except to just listen and oh, just yeah. be there with that person. And so, <clears throat> but I think I probably threw out a couple of things here and there and I'm like, ah, shit, you know what? That was dumb of me to say that was mm-hmm. me just trying to make the situation better. Um, and the lobster is, uh, is, is it shows an, uh, that instinct taken to an absurd degree. Oh, you're alone. Oh, your wife died. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've been broken up with. That's very unfortunate. Okay. Now if you could actually get back to what we would prefer, right. that would be great. Yeah. Um, and specifically with, um, Oh my gosh, what's his name? He plays, he, he, he was in, uh, cloud Atlas and he plays Ben Wishaw. Wisha. His character is, is actually quite amusing in many ways, but his introduction, everybody gives a little statement of who they are and what their abnormality is or whatever it is they call uh, themselves. Um, <clears throat> but he mentions that his wife died like six days ago. Yeah. But you know what? He still has the same amount of time to fall in love as anybody else. Yeah. And he has to, f- he finds somebody that uh, has a very specific type of abnorm- abnormality. And so it's like, okay, well I will just try to mimic hers so then I can be acceptable uh, again. Um, and then ultimately the, the last del- the final dilemma of the film, which is never resolved. Um, it's all about how much are our main characters, how much have they internalized this, the the narrative of, of relationship because part of the narrative is you will most likely it, you unless you are similar in very specific ways to this person that you're with unless you're that then it's not going to work and so one of the characters winds up in a very bad situation and then they are in love with someone who's not in that situation and then that person has to decide am i going to alter myself and my circumstances so that we're both here and it's a, a horrifying moment there at the and end, but you mentioned about five hours ago, you mentioned Wes Anderson. <laughs> and, um, I think that's, uh, uh, I, I don't mean that you've been talking for five hours. I mean, this right. No, no, this I got, I, for a moment I was like, fuck you. Oh no, I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> um, um, 
And I think there's a lot of comparisons to be made to that deadpan style. Yeah. Uh, but in both cases, it's surprising given how incredibly deadpan the lobster is, how emotional it, all, it also yeah. is. That, that thing you're talking about um, is uh, very emotional. And then there's, there's also, now I said about seven hours ago, I talked about uh, John Wick and movies where dogs die. I will say about the lobster, if you are bothered by dogs dying in the movie, maybe steer clear because <laughs> yeah. it's a, it's very upsetting to me. Uh, the, the dead dog yeah. part. And yet hilarious. It is. That's the other thing. Yeah. Unfortunately, the stuff I'm talking, well, <laughs> not merely that, that part is funny, but it like, is. Yeah. I have to say, but everything I've been talking about is very, very serious. And yet I laughed my ass oh, yeah, off through this movie. Yeah, it's a consistently very funny movie. Okay. Number one, David. Number one, I know three. what it is. Yes, there's no uh, surprise if you've been listening to the podcast uh, that I'm uh, fully on board uh, with Damien Chazelle's La La Land, and that's my number one. Uh, sue me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bunch of creeps. Everyone loved the movie, and then once everyone loved the movie, everyone hated the movie. Um, which, which is which is too bad because it's uh it's it's absolutely joyful and um it's the most uh, you'll notice that a lot of the movies that i have talked about that i responded emotionally to from Sully to swiss army man to others um are hopeful and i think there's so much hope to be found in in La La Land and the fact that much like Swiss Army Man, I'm not sure how many people have compared La La Land to Swiss Army Man, much like Swiss Army Man, it recognizes that certain things are going to be hard and are not going to go well. And I'm talking about specifically in relationships. I know some people are bothered. Here's the thing. I had this, um, actually exchange with a listener who emailed me about La La Land. Mm. Um, and a lot of people are bothered by the fact that both of these struggling artists essentially achieve their dreams. Right. Hmm. Um, and to me, because I thought of the movie as being so much more about their relationship and it's kind of a fantasy. I think the, what I said in the email back to the listener was like, to me, them achieving their artistic dreams was as much of a foregone conclusion as James Bond not getting killed. Like, it just seemed like this is the type of movie where, yeah, they're going to, yeah. that's not what it's about. It's about whether the relationship's going to work. You know, that's, that's how I, that's how I read it. And maybe because I had that in my mind while I was watching the movie, I wasn't bothered uh, by things that other people were who, who, who weren't approaching it uh, that way. Um, but it, it's a, but back to, back to my point. Yes. It's a movie where you're going to become a famous actor, actress or own your own jazz club. That's very successful or whatever. Um, that's fine. But your relationships aren't necessarily going to work out and you're going to get your heart broken. Um, and that's not only, that's not even unfortunate. That's necessary. That's part of life. That's part of growing. Uh, and I found that kind of, um, a surprisingly sober hopefulness in the midst of a movie that you wouldn't describe as sober at all. That's yeah. it's, uh, um, fantastical. Uh, I found that very powerful. And then from an aesthetic standpoint, it's the kind of spectacle that I like. Um, and I think, you know, uh, when people have compared it to other classic movie musicals, the clear, the two clear, clear comparisons in terms of directors are Stanley Donen and Jacques Demy. And I love Jacques Demy's movies, like to the point where Young Girls of Rochefort might be a top 10 all time movie for me. Um, and this has some of that Jacques Demy um, uh, magic in that it's 
fantastical and lovely and otherworldly, but there's always something about it that feels a little bit handmade. Like you can always, yeah. you can always kind of see, like I remember in, in young girls of Rochefort, there's like, uh, a, 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 a big like musical number that's like going down a street and you can see like, it's like the shadows are a little weird from the building and the crane shakes at one point. And it's like, this is like beautifully composed and thought out, but there's also these sort of reminders that, uh, what you're watching is a movie. Yeah. And, um, I find that, um, uh, even more, I, yeah, I, I find that handmade quality, um, somehow even more transporting. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's like a, um, uh, uh, a picture your kid drew or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it yeah. doesn't look real, but it came from someplace, uh, pure. Um, and, uh, I guess I'm done defending La La Land. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's unfortunate. Um, cause it did almost make my, my top 10. Um, and it's a film that by the time I saw it, I was, it's not that I was ready to dislike it, but uh, the backlash had, s- mm-hmm. it just started. Okay. And so I thought like, uh, I tend not to, uh, I was rewatching, uh, an old episode of, <coughs> of the West wing. One of my favorite episodes, um, the name of which I don't recall. Oh, it is the one. It, it's the second, uh, one with Oliver Platt character. Okay. So it's, uh, and he's talking with CJ and at one point he says, in my whole life, I've never found anything charming. <laughs> and, uh, and only Oliver Platt could sell that line. Um, and so, um, so I kind of went into La La Land with that attitude. It's like, I am not going, it's unlikely I'm going to find this charming. In fact, most movies I do not find charming. Uh, but it charmed me. Absolutely. Um, and it's while I, it, while I would probably not give it best picture uh, of the year, um, which it is likely headed towards. Um, it, it is just, it's, it's everything. Okay. This is big. It is movie making. Mm. It's everything movie making. Not that everything it should be. Not every movie is meant to be like that, but right. it's everything it can be. Um, which is just the, the, this wonderful mixing of, of music and, and editing and, and cinematography and performance and, the, and, and writing and just all of these things coming together. Like to me, the fact that you can have that, that dinner scene where they're having a very down to earth domestic fight. Yeah that you can have that in the same movie as the the planetarium dance sequence and that you actually find a way to have both of them seem 100% feasible uh, in the reality that you've presented us with is a, an astonishing feat. Um, and it bothers me. It does bother me that people are so willing to, to discount it as though, well, yeah, okay, it's not moonlight in certain ways, but it exceeds moonlight in a number of other ways. Um, and it just, yeah. I don't know, it, 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 just the backlash just bothers me. Like uh, what film, like what film could be the, the front runner this year that wouldn't have backlash? No, because I don't think there is one because once a film becomes the front runner, that's, that's what causes the backlash. I think, I guess uh, individuals listening to this who don't like La La Land probably don't agree with me because they have valid reasons for not liking La La Land, but it does seem like on mass it, it's the it's the front runnerness that causes the backlash. The the only time I remember the obvious front runner not getting backlash from the people we're talking about is no country for old men. Hmm. 
And even, and even then people are like, eh, I think I prefer there will be blood, but at the same time, what am I going to do? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I lied. I'm not done defending La La okay. Land because I also want to defend it as a Los Angeles movie. And I think I've said this part on the podcast before, but, um, uh, I think because I'm not a person, I listen to jazz sometimes. I feel like a douche even saying that, uh, but I, I don't like care about jazz the way yeah. that I'm like a jazz guy, the, the way that, that, that he is. Um, and so the jazz stuff didn't seem that important to me, but the, or didn't, that's not true. It didn't resonate with me is what I'm saying. Um, but the scene with John legend, when John legend sort of dresses down, uh, uh, Seb, right. That's his name. Yeah. Um, uh, for his sort of, um, overly purist and backwards, uh, you know, view of, uh, of, of jazz is that res where that did resonate with me is I think that's kind of a code for how the movie feels about Los Angeles is. And I think people are missing that because they are going to so many recognizable places like the, you know, the, the observatory right. and, uh, they go to the, the angels flight, which I'm not sure how recognizable that is to people outside of Los Angeles. I don't, I actually don't know. I don't have a good yeah, handle on that, but the angels flight is, yeah. Uh, um, and they like the, uh, you know, a pier, uh, although they didn't go to the Santa Monica pier, thank God, because it's garish. I mean, yeah. I like it there. It's a fun time, but it's not, it wouldn't be right for that scene. I think that uh, it's Hermosa beach is where that pier is. Um, and, uh, what was the other one I was going to say? Uh, the Colorado uh, street bridge in, sure. in Pasadena. Um, but it also recog- like it's aware that trying to be, trying to preserve Los Angeles is kind of antithetical to what Los Angeles is. Los Angeles is a city that is often intentionally indifferent to itself and its own identity and past. Yeah. Because it, it has, uh, because it's more, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have said that it's a collection of neighborhoods more than it is a, a city. Um, but even those, uh, those neighborhoods, they, they change, you know, you've got, uh, historic Filipino town. How many Filipinos live in historic Filipino town? Yeah. Things, uh, you know, things change. Like you know, and that's and that's true of a lot of the the neighborhoods that are named after ethnic populations. Like you know, little Armenia. Yeah, there's a lot of Armenians there, but like Glendale is <laughs> where uh, the Armenian population is uh, more more centered. Anyway, that's I'm, I'm getting away from myself, but I, I think the movie is more aware than people are giving it credit for that. Um, it's starry. I'd look at these sort of basic landmarks um, is, just as regressive as Seb's uh, opinions about jazz, but it's also not necessarily hurting anybody. Um, Just like Seb can have his own little world and his own little nightclub where he just plays, you know, traditional jazz. Like uh, you can, you can have the Los Angeles that you want because it's so, it's so, it's so big, but the movie recognizes that these things are uh, ephemeral, um, which I think it's, it's, it's no coincidence that the 
movie theater where they go to see Rebel Without a Cause, the Rialto in Pasadena closes in the movie yeah. because in real life it was or it was already closed. It's that the Rialto the Rialto is no more. Um, and you all, they also ride the Angel's Flight, which you can't do right now. Someday maybe you will be able to again. Um, it, now it's just like a, essentially a museum piece on the side of a hill, <laughs> uh, on the side of Hill Street. Um, uh, I, and I think people are maybe, uh, I, sh- I, I, I've been meaning to, maybe it's too late. I've been meaning to write this for the website, uh, put everything that I'm saying down into a more, uh, coherent, uh, series of thoughts. But, uh, think I think people are su- not paying attention to what the movie is actually saying about Los Angeles. Do you think the success of, uh, La La Land will actually spur them to open up the angels flight again? Uh, maybe, I mean, it's, it has to do with, safety is why it's why it's closed i think the city would love to have it running um it's been running it you know since i've lived here 12 years and for a few of those years it was running i wrote it uh when you could but then it derailed um and i don't think anyone was hurt thank god but um uh it derailed and i think that's why it's closed now is because it's they need i think from what I understand, there's sort of a push and pull toward like, we need to do things to make it safer, but also this is an historical landmark. We can't change it too much. Yeah, no, that I understand. That's tough. Yeah, that's tough. Um, okay. So my Here number one, the big reveal. Cause I don't know what this is. Do you really not? Okay. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. Um, it is my number one is J a Bayona's a monster calls. How about that? Yeah. Did you, I, you saw yeah, that, right? I, I liked it. Yeah, um, yeah. I would not have seen that one coming. As tends to happen, uh, my number one is something that resonated with me thematically, not more than artistically, but it really hits me in a very specific way. And Monster Calls absolutely does that. And I'll say this, um, you know, obviously, just grief tends to be a, a theme that I that I'm interested in, but that's usually not enough. Um, I've read a number of articles that were very reductive of a monster calls and then which they said like, Oh, it's, you know, and they said they're sarcastic and they said, Oh yes, it's all about how it's okay to grieve. Boy, that's original. It's like, that is not what the film is about. It is partially what's it, what it's Mm -hmm. about, but it's scratching the surface. Uh, this film is so first of all, I'll talk about it. It sounds like someone being, intentionally obtuse because they don't want to unpack what the movie is actually about. That's yeah. And admittedly, like when I had to write my review of it, uh, for uh, more than one lesson, it's just like, Oh shit, there's a lot to write here. Um, well, I will say that first off, I think visually it's a nice, it's a really nice, uh, uh, a nice world that is that is put together because it's a world it does take place in modern day but it is sort of a world outside of time um it's you know char- characters ride in cars and they're modern cars and that sort of thing but just the fact that you know our our main character this kid he goes to a school where he has to wear a uniform and then mm-hmm. you see the way you know the 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 house that he lives in and then you see his grandmother's house and just everything is sort of the is sort of the essence of what it is as opposed to actually being that do you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. i wouldn't say it's necessarily expressionistic in that way but there it's not it's not unexpressionistic either um <clears throat> and then and the fact that there are houses, you know, uh, on the outskirts of this very large field where this uh, this old uh, James Whale esque church and cemetery yeah. uh, is located, with this very large gnarled tree, um, you know, it just 
in its depiction of everyday life, this film did not need to be as gothic uh, as it is. Mm. Um, in fact, some would say that it could be that it would be more impactful if it wasn't gothic. If it was, in fact, just the, uh, the, uh, a world that we recognize, and then fantasy intrudes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that. Just that it maybe 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 it is more expressionistic than, than what I'm saying because we're dealing with a main character who's in a constant state of gloom and right. sadness and the film the the world that he's living in reflects that. And so <coughs> excuse me. Um and so you have this this kid who's who is confronted by this large monster that is thankfully uh, not very cuddly, at least not at first. He is actually quite frightening at first, um, as he should be. And then slowly but surely, he he certainly never becomes cuddly, but no. he does become... Uh, an ally? He's an ally. Yeah. Uh, that's a great way of putting it, yes. And and he tells these stories, and the stories themselves are... are I wish I mean, when I say he's an ally, I mean he's like totally woke, and he wears a this-is-what-a-feminist-look-like t-shirt. Yeah, it's a weird it's a weird note to play, yeah. uh, but you know, I I, th- I thought it'd be higher on your list given that scene. Um, but uh, <laughs> that reminds me of that wonderful uh, is it the Onion or is it uh, Clickhole where it says like Wouldn't it be nice if just once Hodor Hodor looked at the camera and said Women's Rights <laughs> in Game of Thrones? Um, anyway, <clears throat> so. Uh, so the, the, the monster says to the, the kid, I'm going to tell you three stories and each story is beautifully animated, mm-hmm. uh, and animated in a way that reminded me of, um, the animation sequence in, uh, Harry Potter and the, the Deathly Hallows part one, I part believe. One. Yeah. I guess one, yeah, um, one. and it's just, it's just a very, it's, it's hauntingly animated. Uh, the stories definitely don't seem upbeat. They seem rather uh, sad and haunting. They seem sort of like Grimm's fairy tales more than, than like Mm -hmm. a modern animated film. Um, But ultimately what really strikes me about it, what strikes me about this film is that it challenged me emotionally and it challenged me philosophically and it got me to acknowledge some things that I myself am not comfortable acknowledging. Um, And that is that, you know, not, not unlike the lobster where it's like, okay, this is how you should react to things. This Mm -hmm. is how you should live. And it's very, you know, there's one track and you need to be on it. Uh, and so it's this idea of, you know, this kid's mother is dying of cancer. There is only one acceptable way to feel about that. Mm -hmm. And that is sad. Mm -hmm. Obviously, obviously. Right. But what the film, without getting too much into it, because, you know, nobody saw it, and so uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but the film acknowledges that the kid has a number of reactions to his mother dying, none of them positive, right. but some of them uh, being such that the kid is, is less willing to openly say them, much, uh, you know, uh, he won't even acknowledge them to himself, much less say them to somebody else. And it just got me thinking about, like, just the complexity of life and that, you know, in any major element of your life, you are encouraged either, um, consciously or unconsciously to accept the simplest of, uh, of explanations about that thing. You know, for example, 
I am married. I love my wife. I love her more than I love anybody else in the world. Okay. That is true. Mm -hmm. It is also true that there are times when I hate her, (laughs) you know, and uh, quite literally, like there are times when just, she has made me so angry that in this moment, it's like, I feel, I do not feel an ounce of love for Mm -hmm. this woman. And some would say that to even admit that or even think it is somehow a betrayal. It's like, no, that's just how human beings are. One, one of those things are both true. They can both be true at the exact same time. One of them is truer. Right. One of them is a deeper truth and a longer lasting truth, which is that I love her and the hate will is just an emotional thing and a temporary thing and it will fade away. But, and, and I think what the film suggests is that one of the ways to make that, fade away is to acknowledge it. Yeah. That's what, that definitely what, what the movie is about. And it's just, and that idea is so, I don't know. It just, because of, because of the, the, the various groups that I, that I, uh, that I run with, you know, my gangs and such, <laughs> um, there tends to be an emphasis on simplicity and, while I understand that, and I think that some things are more simple than people might uh, want to acknowledge, I also want to suggest that that complexity is not the same as as something being complicated, and that emo- relationships and emotions, and I would say faith and philosophy, can be complex. There can be things that seem to be in contrast to each other, and in fact are in contrast to each other, and they are both true in, but one of them is probably deeper and because, but we don't want to acknowledge that at all. We don't, you know, in in my, in my groups, it's just like, yes, you need to believe, and this goes back to silence, this idea of, you know, Mm -hmm. if you believe in this thing, you can't have any doubt. And if you have doubt, you certainly can't acknowledge it or engage with it in any kind of real way. Meanwhile, the best way to rid yourself of doubt is to acknowledge it and address it as honestly as you can. Um, and so like, this is all the stuff that a monster calls made me feel, uh, made me think about and made me feel it's so much more than simply it's okay to grieve. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it's just, I absolutely an, know what you mean. it's an yeah. absolutely gorgeous movie in, in um, every way. It, it, it also, uh, this is a, a smaller <clears throat> note, but, uh, it, it does, uh, it, it, the movie does, um, support the therapeutic benefits of, destroying shit absolutely just <laughs> something that i've uh been trying to tell people my whole life it's like uh no i do feel better after i throw this thing or break this thing yeah it's th- but it also acknowledges that yeah you do still need to clean it up though yeah um, you do yeah you know. that's true and uh yeah and, and the idea is it, the reason that it's therapeutic often and certainly in the film to break something is because people say you're not supposed to do it. Right. And so in the same way that you're not allowed to feel the way you're spo- the way you feel, you're not allowed to break these things. It's just like sometimes, you know, it almost, it, it's a nice metaphor for the emotions that the kid is feeling is that like, they're going to come out one way or another. It could be horrendous or mm-hmm. you could actually just deal with this. You know, he's the, the room he destroys. It's not just a room. Right. It's a room that the person says, don't, touch anything yeah do not engage with this in any level don't make things messy 
keep things need to be absolutely pristine. And because he's not allowed to do anything, mm-hmm. he winds up doing everything. And in that same way, philosophically and, and emotionally, if there are certain things we're not allowed to touch at all or deal with at all, it's still going to come out, but it might come out in a much more destructive way yeah. as opposed to if we just said, no, it's okay to, it's okay to touch what you want. It's fine. You know, I don't know. It's a, it, wonderful film i absolutely it, it, I, loved it. I, I liked it quite a bit um one no, uh, just a just a note uh i find myself more distracted uh, i'm less distracted by british actors playing americans than i am by american actors playing it means because they're american actors i'm more familiar with them yeah as americans but like i can buy you know, Tom Hiddleston's going to put on an American accent. I'm like, all right, I'll buy it. Yeah. But Sigourney Weaver being like a British lady is like weird. Like I couldn't quite get into it the whole movie. Yeah. It's, and she's, she's hitting all the right notes emotionally. Um, and I think it's a great, really great performance, but I did have this thought. I kind of have the thought either way, which is like, couldn't find anybody. (laughs) It's like there, there are, a number of notable British actresses that I think <laughs> yeah. could have tackled this. And Sigourney Weaver, again, does a great job. But yes, I, I definitely know what you mean. It is uh, a bit distracting. All right. Weird note for us to end on, but we have to end because th- it's not quite a record, but uh, this is a long episode. Uh, so you can find us at battleshipretention.com. That's where you can find the BPs. That's where you can find uh, all of our contributors' top 10 lists. And, that you, and, and that's, of course, where you can see, uh, in case you've forgotten what you just listened to over the past three and a half hours, um, you can see our lists, uh, me and Tyler's list again. And again, the... Um, the the BPs or the the, the battleship retention uh, overall lists of worst and best uh, will be up this week, right? Um, yes. Uh, next week uh, I won't be on the show because I don't do the Oscar episode. It's my right. one of my week weeks off. Um, so uh, listen to Tyler and whoever. Uh, in between, then you can email us at uh, David at battleshipretention.com or Tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons. Yeah. What's going on? More less more than one lesson. Nothing. I uh, I skipped a week because I was sick. Right. And uh, and then I skipped another recording because I was sick. So we'll see what this week has in store. All right. Well, we've done enough talking anyway. So thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 